All right, welcome back to week two, part two of our Pizza Theology, In It, Not Of It, How to Think Like a Christian in Society. So if you didn't get to be a part of last week, I hope that you'll go back and hear that because what we're going to say today is based on what we said last week. Um, If you don't have a packet, I would encourage you to go ahead and get that. We did make one change this week. Instead of just having a PDF, uh, which I know some of you like got at the last minute, didn't have time to print out, Uh, if you go to anyfocus.org slash pizzatheo, there's a link there to the Google Doc, and you can go in. Uh, It has instructions there, but you can go in, make yourself a copy, and then type directly into that Google Doc if you want to fill in blanks or add things in between. Uh, But I do encourage you to take notes. Even if that's just in a journal, you'll remember more. It'll be a good thing. So let me start us with a a prayer here. God, I want to pray that you bless our time over the next couple hours um, and that you would plant kingdom seeds in our hearts and minds and that they would grow into your kingdom vision ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're talking about this week is so what? Last week we were talking about biblical foundations, uh, and this week we're moving towards what do we do with all of that? Uh, Where do we go Uh, specifically as individual Christians, collectively as Christians? And those are challenging questions. So hopefully we'll give you some direction today, but do not expect to know exactly what to do every day, every moment, uh, every issue coming out of today. But we really are trying to equip you. And that's a lot of why we, we don't spend as much time on the specific issues as we do on laying a foundation that we think Uh, will help you as a disciple figure out these things. So last week, I ended by talking about the the fact that the gospel isn't partisan, but that it is political and prophetic. And this week, I want to add the question, but how did Jesus use power? What he was doing was political. uh, He was prophetic. But how did he use power? And to get at this, I want to start with a very key story in the Gospels, uh, the story of Jesus being tempted in the desert. And so this moment uh, in the Gospel story is right before he starts his ministry. He has his baptism, this anointing from God. God expresses his pleasure with Jesus before he's even started his ministry. And then the Spirit takes him out into the wilderness uh, to be tested. And Matthew and Luke both tell us this story, but I want to read it uh, from Matthew. So the question is, he's just getting ready to get started. What is he going to do? What kind of Messiah is he going to be? So Matthew 4. Maybe I have it here. Yes. Um, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It's also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. I think maybe we're here. 
uh, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So Jesus is tempted three times, and each of these testings or these temptations is really a question about what kind of Messiah is he going to be? How is he going to use power? Uh, in the first temptation about bread, he's, uh, he's tested on whether he's going to use his power for himself. And that's one thing that we don't see Jesus ever do, that he uses his power to bless others, but not to enrich himself in any way. It's what Omri Nouwen calls the temptation to be relevant. If you can make uh, stones into bread, you, know, you can be a very popular person. Uh, you can meet the needs of the people around you. But Jesus rejects that. The second temptation, he takes him up on this uh, high point of the temple and says, jump down and you know, basically do a miracle. Everyone's going to be seeing. You're going to float down. Everyone's going to know you're the Messiah. It's what Nouwen calls the temptation to be spectacular. The power of celebrity, that everyone thinks you're so cool. And yet, how many of Jesus' miracles were just sort of done in obscurity? How many of them did he do and then tell people not to tell anyone what they'd seen? He wasn't about that. But I want to look especially at the third one, where Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. He offers him all the political power, the power to really get things done. And Jesus doesn't dispute that Satan can give these things, um, but he does dispute whether he should take that offer. And now one writes this reflecting on this thing. Did I give you this? Maybe not. No, I didn't. Uh, maybe I think it's in your packet. He says, one of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power, political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power, even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others, as well as saying to ourselves that having power, provided it's used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. With this rationalization, crusades took place, inquisitions were organized, Indians were enslaved, positions of great influence were desired, Episcopal palaces, splendid cathedrals, and opulent seminaries were built, and much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, such as the great schism of the 11th century, which is when the, the East and Western church split apart, the Reformation in the 16th century, when the Catholics and the Protestants split apart, or the immense secularization of the 20th century, we always see that a major cause of the rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. What makes the temptation to power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. It's easier to control people than it is to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. 
Jesus asks, do you love me? We ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in your kingdom? We're asking different questions. And if we're going to live as disciples, then we have to remember who we are following and actually follow him. Who are we following and actually follow him? We're not going to improve on his way. We're not going to follow Jesus by falling to the same temptations that he rejected at a foundational point in his ministry. And we're not going to get Jesus's work done without doing them Jesus's ways. If we're going to live as disciples, it's going to require humility. It's going to require humility that we're always learning and growing, that we can't calcify even as we get older. This is one of the challenges that we face as we age in Christ. But I even see it in uh, 18-year-olds, this kind of perspective of like, oh, yeah, I've heard it all before. Oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just the same old, same old. I'm like, no, you have to be learning. And if you feel like there's nothing left for you to learn, that's a mark of the pride in your heart. It, it's a, a signpost that humility is not happening. Because if I grow as a disciple, which means a student or a follower, then I'm going to be learning more as time goes on, not less. It's kind of like I was a little bit of a student in kindergarten and I learned a few things, but now I'm working on my second master's degree and I learn in an hour as much as I learned in kindergarten. I have so much to learn. I've grown as a student and that's what God is calling us to. And so disciples will be people who ask questions. Disciples will be asking questions because they're humble and they want to learn. We'll ask questions of the people who disagree with us. We'll ask questions of the things that we read. We'll ask questions as we engage with Scripture. We'll ask questions in prayer. We'll ask questions of our mentors. Questions are powerful. Hear this word from James. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I think we have to be looking at ourselves in that, especially in this realm of political involvement, to say, am I quick to listen? Am I slow to speak? Am I slow to become angry? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And we certainly should be asking those questions in our interpersonal relationships as well. So what kinds of questions do I think it's important for us to be asking as disciples in this particular area? Certainly questions that are seeking understanding. And as I said, 12-year-old Jesus was wiser than most of us in this. I love this story from Luke. He says, that's when Mary and Joseph are looking for their son. After three days, they find him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
So here's a little boy who, when all the adults have gone home, is still sitting with the, the foremost experts of God's word, listening and asking questions. And the result of that is that he ended up with amazing understanding and answers. But it comes in that order. And we ought to be getting better and better questions, becoming better and better question askers. We ought to practice the discipline of inquisitiveness, which is one way to practice humility, that we don't assume that we already know the answers or that we don't need them. But I want to look at two other questions that I think are in contrast with each other when we start getting into this area of politics. See, I think we can ask the question of power, which is really, does it work? Does whatever I'm looking at doing work? Does it get the job done? Is it useful? Or I think we can ask the question of love. Is it good? Does it please God? Does it bless others? Is the thrust of it to be a blessing? And I'm not saying that these never have any overlap, but I am saying that the questions are different. And we have to wrestle with this deeper question of whether Christian ethics are based on what works or on what's good and loving. And I would hold out to you that Christian ethics are always based on what's good and what's loving, not just on what works. So we could look at some of the different things that we wrestle with today. Do we recycle because recycling works? If I recycle, it's going to make this big impact on the world, and thus I will choose through that. Or if I'm like, no, it doesn't really make that big of an impact, then I'm not going to do it. So that's the question of power. I've played my cards. All I really care about is what's functional. Or am I asking, is it good to recycle? Is it the right thing to do? Or is it the wrong thing to do? Because I think that's the truly Christian question. If we look at it in reverse, maybe it's a little clearer. Why do we not steal? Do we not steal because we would get fines or go to prison if we stole? Or do we not steal because it's wrong? Because it's unloving? See, if I could guarantee you that you would not go to prison or get fined for stealing, would that make stealing okay? That may be what it's like to be rich in our country, actually. No, it doesn't make it okay. It's still unloving. It's still not good. And that's the question that God would have us ask. And of course, remind us that regardless of what penalties human courts have for us, there is a higher judge. You know, Peter touched on this last week when he talked about abortion. Do we only oppose abortion if the policy is politically workable? Do we support abortion because they work, assuming that the goal is better opportunities and financial stability for certain people? We could look at it with the political maneuverings of the parties today as they jack up our system of government with gerrymandering and, uh, you know, changing the Senate rules. And everything's about how do I get a little bit of power? What works? Not really what's good. See, if Jesus was 
con- concerned more with what was useful than what was good, he would have turned stones to bread, jumped off that building, and bowed down to Satan. Because that would have been a shortcut to success. So very modern and American. But Jesus made different choices, and we should too. We reject the world's assumptions about power because Jesus is our model. See, we're following Jesus. We're not leading Jesus into a better way of doing things. And that's what we have to look at ourselves and ask, am I following Jesus or am I out in front of him saying, look, Jesus, let me show you some cool things you could have done if only you'd been as smart as me. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The church at Corinth struggled with a lot of this. They didn't get a lot of this. Paul tells them in chapter 4, he says, Brothers and sisters, I I couldn't address you as spiritual. You know, no, you're mere infants in Christ. Because they were impressed by all the wrong things. They were looking at what was spectacular and what was powerful. And Paul was looking for what looked like the cross. So I want you to hear these words from chapter 1. I've skipped some verses, but you can go back and look at it. He says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, now Paul does not actually think that God is in any way weak or foolish. It might even be helpful to, uh, you know, put quotes, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. But what he is reflecting on is Jesus on the cross, that the the final moment, uh, the culmination of his ministry is that God has made himself first weak to become a human, and then weaker to be arrested and to be tried unjustly and to be hung on this tree to die. And so from our perspective, our given to those three temptations of Satan perspective, it looks like Jesus is foolish and weak. Because what's weaker than being nailed to a cross? What's more foolish than hanging up there naked while people mock you? But what Paul is saying is that This moment is the culmination of God's power and wisdom. It's the thing that's going to fix what's broken in the world. When our increasing battles and power and politics and armies have never fixed it, but only made it worse. Because it's going to fix the human heart where the actual problem is. If the cross is our standard... If the cross is God's true wisdom and power, 
How judgmental will we be of other people? If the cross is our standard, how merciful will we be toward other people? Even our political opponents, even those who we find despicable. I think this was tested for many of us, uh, especially young progressive people, when we found out that our president contracted COVID over the weekend. See, is my first instinct to pray that he comes to harm from this? Or is my first instinct to pray that he comes to repentance from this? That God would heal him and bless him and change him through this process? Jesus called for justice, yes, but he offered mercy. And so often today, both conservatives and liberals lack mercy, just in different ways. But Hosea said, and Jesus echoed two times, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And none of this is to say that some of us aren't called to specific works of ministry in specific areas, or we should just sit around and navel gaze and look at our own hearts. The church is a very big church, and we're called to different things. There are many things that need to be done. And we need to be careful about judging each other uh, for doing the things that we feel called to do, just like we need to be careful about judging those outside. And I do think when we look at where we're at, we can ask the question, what is God forming us to do? I don't know of anyone in our ministry right now who was born Amish or a Quaker. So maybe God is forming you to be engaged in society. I think there have been people, I think about especially the Essenes who were out in the desert in the first century waiting for the Messiah that was kind of, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are in the cities. And the Essenes just seemed to miss him completely when he came. They didn't even know he came. Their withdrawal from the world put them outside of what God was doing. So maybe God's calling you to be engaged, but I can guarantee you he's not calling you to use power like the world does. And he's not calling you to be unmerciful. One of my favorite quotes to conclude is from a little book, that's about a very specific topic. And Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, wrote the foreword. And he's just talking about the, the author, uh, Dr. Mills. He says, faced with the massive moral disintegration of our times, everything's going wrong. We are commonly intimidated into passivity. We just feel like, I can't do anything, I won't, I won't do anything. He says, Dr. Mills is not intimidated. He doesn't take on the entire ruined culture he simply stakes out a modest claim and begins. But this is the exactly kind, or it is exactly this kind of obedient beginning that so often turns out to have large kingdom consequences. So what I want to do now is take three minutes for you to discuss uh, with the people around you, reflecting on these temptations. How do you see the church responding differently or Christians? Maybe the, the church, I mean the church in terms of all Christians, not in terms of individual congregations necessarily. How do you see the church, Christians, responding differently than Jesus to those three temptations today? And do you think that's a good or a bad thing? 
So we'll take about three minutes to do that, and then we'll move on to the next topic. Thanks. Hello. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the campus pastors up in Denton, if you weren't here last week. And I'm going to be talking today about subversion and lasting change. Subversion and lasting change. So, subversion. Let's talk about what it is. Uh, here's what I mean by that and what I want you to kind of get in your mind with this word subversion. Uh, it is a process by which the values and principles of a system in place are contradicted or reversed in an attempt to transform its structures of power and social norms. That's a long definition. I'm going to say it again. It's a process by which the values and principles of a system in place are contradicted or reversed in an attempt to transform its structures of power and social norms. So it's kind of this, un this idea of undermining, uh, almost like a quiet, uh, subtle form of revolution. Um, so what does this have to do with us? Well, I think a lot. I think the imagery and identity of becoming a subversive is a key to unlocking um, some of the ways we can navigate living in this world now, uh, and also how we can participate in bringing God's kingdom to bear. Um, so let's take a look at something that Jesus said. Uh, Jesus, in this passage I'm about to read, he's talking about God's kingdom. Uh, kind of what is it? How do we know where it is? What are the signs of it? It's in Mark 4, starting in verse 26. Jesus also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. So I want us to just take a second to realize this is kind of a strange concept. Jesus is saying two things about the kingdom here. One, its growth doesn't happen when we expect or even by methods we can often see and understand. God is in charge of the growth. And two, this whole mustard seed idea the mustard seed is small and insignificant, yet from that grows something so large, uh, even birds are blessed enough to be able to perch. As we read further in the Gospels and look at Jesus's ministry, these verses unlock for us aspects of Jesus's ministry that seem backwards, not only to our world, but also to their world then. And we talked about last week how you know, Jesus could have come and played to the expectations of what they thought a powerful Messiah figure would have been, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus's ministry up until his death consisted of three main things. Obviously, this isn't everything, but there are three main areas he operated that I want to highlight. One, intentional relationships and caring for people. This includes the disciples and certainly the people he healed and taught and two, a lot of asking questions and telling stories. These stories were often pretty confusing and difficult. And three, this is kind of the guiding underlining principle, pointing people to the kingdom and asking them to live according to it. 
So those three main things. It's an interesting strategy. But let's not miss, this was the method of God. When he showed up on the scene, he did not meet the expectations of really anyone. And it's in this realization that I think we begin to understand the way God operates and the signs of his kingdom. It doesn't look like the world's methods. Nor does it look like the world's methods just adapted into a Christian mindset. It's subversive, meaning it's not obvious. It's not an assault of coercion, nor a strong arm of power. It's small, it's personal, and it's mysterious. David Garland, uh, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark and the NIVAC, reflects on those two passages we just read about the mustard seed and the sower, and he says this. He says, The kingdom will not fit our expectations or our specifications. For those who want to be the top in the world and want something more show-stopping and messianic, the kingdom of God, as it is manifest in our world, will be mostly disappointing. It comes incognito. And up to the very end, one can only trust that Jesus' movement is God's work when all things will finally be revealed. The kingdom of God was present with the coming of Jesus. It was hidden, but not invisible. Most did not see it. They were looking in all the wrong places for all the wrong things. And times have not changed. The spectacular exercise of power is not always a sign of real strength. God's reign, as Jesus pictures it, is not some massive juggernaut that mows down everything in its path. The signs pointing to God's reign appear to be incredibly humble, even when it grows large into a shrub and attracts the birds of the air. That is why so many will overlook its presence, underestimate its power, and shrug off its claim in their lives. So, what did Jesus bringing the kingdom look like? First thing is parables. Jesus used the mundane, everyday ideas at the time of these seeds, harvest, you know, banquets, wealthy landowners, vineyards, and he used this all to teach complex and strange truths about the true nature of reality in God's kingdom. And I think it's hard sometimes not to read them and just see this, you know, this story as some timeless tale with a moral message in the center, something like Aesop's fables. But as we read them closer, they start to feel uncomfortable. They hold secrets that take some time to unlock. And like any good story, I think they have a way of just lodging into the mind of the hearer or the reader. And the secrecy and the hiddenness side of these parables, I think, may seem frustrating and like a bad way to go about communication. But I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And by telling these parables in his context, Jesus was able to strategically plant kingdom ideals in people's minds. And it came in the form of a story, and not usually even a story about religious things. And so I think people's defenses were relaxed. So by telling these stories, Jesus could lodge, you know, this counter idea to their worldview in such a way that their response could happen slowly. I think he wanted an internal response, one that came with conviction when the true nature of the story finally hit home. And for people who weren't on board with this kingdom just yet, this seemed to be his preferred method of promoting God's ideals and teachings. 
It wasn't until he was alone with his disciples that scripture says Jesus explained everything. And this is a fascinating approach by Jesus. And I think it should raise questions for us today. If Jesus saw this as his way of reaching the uninitiated in his day, what could and should that mean for our approaches, especially in this broader culture in our day? Second thing, Jesus often used questions. Just some random ones, some of my favorites. Uh, Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Who do you say that I am? Why do you ask me about what is good? For if these things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? We could spend time on these and many others, but I just want to draw a couple of things from this idea of these questions. Why use so many questions? You know, it might make some sense for if the God of the cosmos was coming down that he just tells us everything directly. But he doesn't. And I think these questions played a few important roles. For one, they served to cut through a lot of deception. Jesus could see not just the question, but the heart of the person asking it. He could see right through all of that and uses questions back to reflect, get people to reflect on the state of their own hearts. And Jesus often got questions about rules. And he seems to use questions in response as a way to put emphasis back on the rule followers' heart, their posture towards God, rather than just the minutia of rules. So again, for us, what role does question asking, like Brandon talked about, what role does question asking play for you as you navigate this world and the power systems within it? Are you looking for opportunities to ask kinds of questions that will get at people's heart? Or are you out there just kind of lecturing, telling people what you think and what we should do? Just telling the world how to solve its problems and declaring rules that are, you know, made on people who are in no place in their heart to follow them. I think one of the helpful questions we can use is when we're talking about an issue, uh, and it can, it can often be an issue that's very personal and things that get people really passionate, and we can just ask the question, how much time have you spent really trying to understand and empathize with people who are on the complete opposite side as you? How much time have you spent really trying to love them? Another one I found helpful for me recently is what does the fruit of this look like in my life? As I consume mass amounts of news and media on this topic and get stressed out, what is the fruit of that in my life? Is there anything it's producing that sounds like or looks like the fruit of the Spirit? I think we can ask each other that. We can ask other people that. Number three, Jesus spent so much of his time invested in relationships, person-to-person interactions. I mean, for one, he picked 12 guys to spend day and night on mission with. Uh, But also, over and over again, Jesus spends time with the most outcast and the least powerful in the society. This is not the method of the world. I think the world would have said, Jesus, go get cozy with the leaders of the day. Support the right leaders and get cozy with them so that you can wield power to change the culture of the time. But Jesus doesn't do that. He picks nobodies. And he chooses to spend his time 
with the powerless and outcasts of the day. And in that way, he tried to change the heart of a nation. And it's on the shoulders of many of these men and women that went on after his death that we are still here today because the gospel spread. So what does this have to say for us today? Do we look at the powerful leaders in our society in order to enact change? Do we expect that by getting in their good graces or joining their movements, that we can change the hearts of the culture around us, the hearts of the people in the culture around us? Or do we do things the Jesus way? Pick a few people, hitch your wagon to them and say, hey, let's just be crazy enough to think that if we pursue Jesus together and teach others to do likewise, that is the kind of change that is lasting and real. I fear sometimes we see that as too unimpressive or too meek. Maybe it's too slow or seems insignificant to us. But don't forget this idea of the mustard seed. So I want to bridge this idea a little bit to now. Uh, Yuval Levin wrote a book called The Fractured Republic. I haven't read it yet. Uh, And in there he says, uh, we need to renew the middle layers of society. Increasingly, society consists of individuals and a national state. So this you and me on our own, then the government, and this huge divide. Um, But while the mediating institutions, family, community, church, unions, and others fade and falter. And Nathan Hatch, a scholar at Wake Forest College, comments on this, and he says that this is the opportunity for the church to be the church, to return to the task of religious and moral formation, to build communities that bind people together, to instill a deep life conviction that life actually can have a transcendent purpose. And it's not all about individual wants and desires. And to fuel a life in which a transcendent purpose radiates into the world at large. And so I'd like to suggest that the church needs to play this role as an alternative to the political parties. An alternative to the almost religious fervor with which their members live and believing they are going to answer the society's ills. And that alternative is about God's kingdom, the one coming to bear in our world, despite the kingdoms of the world that rule now impermanently. But I don't think we're going to be able to offer any alternative if we just use the language, symbols, and actions of the surrounding culture. We have to also begin speaking in the language only we as the church have. That language is the language of love and mercy and servanthood. And it's the language that seeks to connect people first to God because he is the only true Lord over the only real kingdom that will ever matter. Remember Revelation in 11.15, it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the Lord The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Guys, this is the only true reality. God's kingdom. We belong to it, and we're tasked to be a part of it coming on this earth now. Eugene Peterson, a pastor for many decades, um, some of you are probably familiar with him. He wrote The Message and a lot of other books. Um, But he wrote on this idea of being subversive, Uh, in this book called The Contemplative Pastor. Um, 
And he puts this idea like so. He says, I believe that the kingdoms of this world, whether American, Venezuelan, Chinese, they will become the kingdom of God and Christ. And I believe this new kingdom is already among us. That is why I'm a pastor, to introduce people to the real world and train them to live in it. I learned early in that the methods of my work must correspond to the realities of the kingdom. The methods that make America strong, economic, military, technological, informational, are not suited to making the kingdom of God strong. I've had to learn a new methodology, that of truth-telling, love actions, prayer, and parable. So if we spend our time on this earth as amateur campaigners for this or that political side, just be aware that you're shouting your support for a kingdom that will in the end fall apart and become over, be overcome by God's kingdom. So why not spend your time proclaiming and working for that real kingdom now? Okay, but how? The question then, if you're tracking so far, how do we live in light of this? And I just want to offer some suggestions to you. It's coming from thinking through this more, talking to people and trying to learn. Um, so how do we do subversion and lasting change? I'm just going to do a bunch of things. It's going to be rather quick. Um, but first of all, I just want to say we repent. Number one is we repent. Ask yourself, what parts of the world's kingdoms have you been fighting for? What parts of that do you have the hardest time letting go of? And when you find those things, you ask God for forgiveness. You repent and turn away from them towards God's face. See, personal repentance is far more difficult than just shouting for political or cultural change. Personal repentance takes the humility to say, I must change. Whereas shouting for political, cultural change shouts, you must change. Number two, we pray. Prayer can either be a tool used um, to excuse us to stay out completely, or it can be used as an afterthought and not something we put a lot of hope into. And guys, it cannot be either. Prayer is this area for us as believers. It's our way of interacting with the king of the true kingdom. We ask for his will. We ask for a renewed hope that comes from him. And we ask for his healing in these situations we see in our broken world. This is not some afterthought, nor is it an excuse to stay removed. It's simply a vital part of our fight for the real change only God can bring. Jesus often went away to pray to God, and I have to wonder, were there not issues he could have been out there trying to fix during those times? I'm sure there were, but Jesus chooses to remove himself to pray. We should never look at prayer as something secondary. It's our go-to. Number three, we learn. One of the things I hear again and again uh, from people is something along the lines of, I want to do something, but what do I do? I heard about this thing, you know, it, and I get it, you know. I've said that myself, I've thought it. Um, and I want to point out that if you're here listening to this, probably you're young. These issues in the world are very complex. And they're rarely as simple as opposing sides try to make them sound for the sake of their arguments. So with that in mind, take the attitude of a student. Knowing how to act on all of these issues going on, the ones that you've heard about and the ones you haven't, is unrealistic. So just don't give in 
to the anxiety or the demanding rhetoric of take action now. That can sound so loud in our culture. Be willing to say, I don't know. Be willing to be in a phase of learning. And don't use I don't know as an excuse to never try to learn more, but also be honest and be okay with yourself and be humble about the place you're in. And in the meantime, I mean, the good news is that there's always meaningful work to do that we know. Loving people in your core, learning to be a better roommate, becoming more servant-hearted. These are the things of God's true, real reality that we can do every day. Next one, we proceed carefully. We interact with the world's kingdoms with extreme carefulness. I think we should be very wary when a political side claims either directly or implicitly that by being involved with us, you're doing good, or even sometimes you're doing God's will. Guys, these are the kingdoms of the world. We don't let them tell us what God wants. We start from God's desires, and we look for places in the world where we see him working and join there. That may mean sometimes that those opportunities exist in the public, in the politics. And if so, great, be thoughtful and prayerful about what kind of engagement in those places God wants of you. And always remember that you're in those places subversively because you're working to bring God's good life, his kingdom, in a place that is not yet under that new reality completely. Number five, we get creative. Jesus was strategic. He used parables and stories and questions most often in his interactions with people. And I just want to ask, what role does story play in your work for kingdom? What role do questions play when you're interacting? Or elsewhere, what other creative ways can we use to get involved in the kingdom? There's a lot there I wish we could talk about, but we don't have time. Next one is we sacrifice. Christianity is built on this idea of sacrifice. The most powerful becoming a servant and letting himself be sacrificed in order to love others. Guys, that is backwards. That's upside down. And yet it was the single most important action of our faith history. God saw it as the best way to defeat evil. Do you? So we sacrifice now. Sacrifice your money to organizations, communities that are working to build God's kingdom. Sacrifice your money to other people in community who are in need. Sacrifice your preferences. Become a better steward of God's earth like you were called. Sacrifice your agenda for God's. And it's in sacrifice that we learn how to love. Which brings us to number seven. We love people. We love people. This is arguably the most important one. We love people no matter what. No matter what they give us back. No matter how frustrating they are. No matter if they agree with us. Jesus says, love your enemies. Carry their burdens twice as long as they ask of you. I don't think that's just a metaphor. I think Jesus knows radical change happens when we sacrifice our desire for vengeance, turn away from our anger, and find real ways to show love to those we disagree with. We don't wage war as the world does. We love. We take care of them when they're sick. We commit to them, and we do all that by the power of the Spirit. 
And last one on this, we are patient. Ultimately, God is the one who will bring about the kind of change in this world that we desperately need. So we live patiently. There's going to be glimpses of that future along the way. And we can and should play meaningful roles in those. But don't put all your eggs in the world's basket of, we can change it all if we try hard enough, legislate enough, petition enough, reason with each other enough. That's the social gospel at best. And at worst, it's atheistic and humanistic. We need to be balanced people. One who believe God can and will do meaningful work towards building this kingdom, and we can be a part of that. So living in this mode requires patience, daily patience. I want to conclude here. Don't forget what Peter said last week about law. Laws are things of this current stage. They safeguard and prevent people from acting out on this ugliness inside. But laws and safeguards are woefully inadequate at changing people's hearts. Our culture will not change just because of new laws. The direction of a culture is determined by the position of the hearts of the people within it. In his book, You Are What You Love, James Smith writes, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. And we can't recalibrate the heart from the top down through merely informational measures. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits and desires. So guys, governments, lawmaking, politics, these are the best mechanisms that the world has to affect change. But that's not the best we have, not even close. They're working top down from big to individual, but the kingdom, we should always remember, is upside down. We don't work top down. We work to release the kingdom of God from within. We live and work in humble service of the loving God who affects the very heart of people. Only God can change hearts, and he's invited us to serve and love and shepherd the people around us as a part of that. Thanks, guys. We're going to take a three-minute break, and we'll see you right back after that. Okay. Yeah, so today I'll be talking about immigration, and immigration is very much an issue in our society, but it's not just an important issue to our society. It's always been a deeply personal topic for me and many other immigrants. You and I have thoughts, views, ideas that we believe, insights where we stand on with this and many other political issues. But as Peter explained last week, ideas have consequences. And as Christians, we have the expectation to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. My goal is to share some of my experience as an immigrant and leave you with many thoughts and questions to wrestle with. So first, I will start with some background of where I come from. So I was born in Mexico. I was raised by two amazing parents who, like any good parents, wanted the best for their kids. So at the age of three, my parents and I migrated to the United States. The meaning of my legal status unfolded early on in my childhood as I continually saw my parents running in fear, going from three to four jobs throughout the week, visiting the flea market to so often renew our fake identifications, 
and be expected to memorize her social security number at the age of five and constantly tormenting ourselves by any negative experience that my parents or I underwent because of our illegal status. I share those details because they were the determining factors that shaped much of who I was. I remember at a very young age internalizing the idea that in order for me, a Mexican immigrant woman, to thrive in this country, I needed to hide under false identifications and blend in. Therefore, I needed to fear and not trust anyone that looked different than me, especially if they were anti-immigrant, and rather find hope that some law or change would come around. But ideas have consequences. These ideas clashed when I tried inserting them into different areas of my life. There were consequences when I chose to find my hope in the loss of this land and not in God. There were consequences when I chose not to trust people. It kept me at arm's length and limited me from being known and getting to know others. So last year, I did the apprenticeship. And in one of my classes, we got into the topic about politics. And through that dialogue, our teacher expressed how they voted for Trump and how they felt there was no issue more important than the one of abortion. That statement weighted heavily on me because I disagreed, because I was an immigrant who had lived and experienced the burden that Trump and the politics behind immigration had brought onto my family, myself and so many immigrants. I felt as if someone had just told me that nothing what I had ex of what I had experienced was real or valid. I very quickly defaulted into making assumptions. I assumed this teacher didn't care about immigrants and nonetheless about me. But thankfully, the spirit led me to talk to my teacher. This teacher and I stand on different ends of politics, but when I choose to walk away from my assumptions and address the experience I had in class, I was able to see that this teacher has a big heart for people like me. I learned that the only way that we can grow the kingdom is not by debating and trying to convert someone into our political party, but rather by extending grace, talking to each other, and loving people that look and think differently than us. So I have a couple of thoughts that I have been wrestling with, and the experience of that apprentice class with that teacher brings me to the first thought of harm versus hurt. So there's a difference between feeling pain and actually being harmed. When we hit our head or our toe, it hurts really bad. But sometimes if we wait, the pain subsides in just a few moments and we realize that nothing is bleeding and that nothing is broken. I wasn't really harmed, but it touched a nerve. It can be the same way with an issue like this. It hurts when someone voices support for Trump or the Republican Party because of what many of them say about immigrants. I feel some pain, I feel offended, I feel uncared for, but I have to see if those feelings are connected to reality. Does this person not care about immigrants? Do they not care about me? Are they trying to harm me? Or is it just one of those moments where life is a little painful, but I'm going to be okay? Now, remember my apprentice class experience I talked about earlier? That was a harm versus hurt experience. Though it hurt that my teacher valued another issue that was not immigration, 
It wasn't harmful. My teacher was simply expressing their stand, but no one was overstepping the law or out to get me. I've had to wrestle and think deeply of the language I use when expressing my experience as an immigrant or when I'm skeptical of my anti-immigrant brothers and sisters. I've definitely been hurt, harmed, but it doesn't mean that everyone is anti-immigrant or that everyone is against me. So my second thought is this. One of the running themes in how I think about immigration is who is my neighbor? Does a Christian view people only in the context of ethnic, tribal, national identity? Or do we view all people as being made in God's image and worthy of the same love? And do we truly believe that all of us are made in God's image? Do we view cultural differences and the strengths of a diverse population as a reflection of God's goodness? Or are we secretly only interested in others if they look like us? Which is a a form of self-worship? Again, no answers for you guys, just questions upon questions. So some of the most common reasons why people migrate to the United States are for better opportunities to find work, better living conditions, to escape their troubled country, or to get a better education. However, those people and their reasons for coming into this country tend to be buried as we get political and rather make this a black and white issue, like should we close our borders or not? I think sometimes we forget that Jesus, the one we call our Lord and Savior, was also an immigrant once when he was in Egypt as a refugee. And I wonder, what would it have looked like if they had shut down the border on him? So I want to encourage you to do some research for yourself. Why are immigrants coming into this country? Be willing to talk to your, to your neighbors and people that look different than you. Maybe they aren't immigrants, but maybe their parents are or their grandparents. And those on the opposite end, be willing to share your experience. We can expect people to change and fully wrestle with some of these questions if we are also not willing to talk about our experience and how this has affected you or your family. So now I want to talk about a little bit about laws surrounding immigrants. One difficult conversation I wrestle with when thinking objectively and trying to disconnect the fact that I am an immigrant and all that I have experienced is how do we view those who willingly break the laws? The anti-immigrant position would claim that the responsibility for my experience or the experience of any immigrants rests entirely on their parents for the choice to come to this country. Because in fact, whether I had a say or not at the age of three of coming into this country, I broke the law, and so therefore, I have to face the consequences. But how does a Christian think about this? At which point do we elevate our personal convictions over the written laws? For example, in the case that someone was to migrate unsuccessfully into this country, in other words, in the case that the person migrating was to get caught by ICE, this person would be detained would be placed in a detention center. The U.S. currently has 200 detention centers, which are unlivable. A Times article states, adults and children have been held for days, weeks, or even months in cramped cells, sometimes with no access to soap, 
toothpaste, or places to wash your hands or shower. Some reports have emerged of children sleeping on concrete floors, others of adults having to stand for days due to lack of space. The Department of Homeland Security found that 900 people cramp were cramped into a space designated to only accommodate 125 people at most. Scripture makes it clear that at times Christians' duty is to follow the law of the established authority. Go look at Romans 13, 1 through 7, or 1 Peter 13 through 17. But it also makes it clear that many laws run contrary to God's and should not be followed. Look at Exodus 1, the king of Egypt wanting to kill the baby boys, the midwives not complying. We see a couple, a couple of examples in Daniel, several examples across Acts of continuing to preach when told by local rulers not to. I think there's a way to acknowledge this, difficult, this difficulty about respecting the law, but perhaps with the context that U.S. immigration laws are very dense, and there's a per, perception or belief that it's not a big deal, the same way many of us don't really view speeding as a big deal or think about minor traffic crimes, like rolling past stop signs. We're not talking turn a blind eye to murder type of crime. We're talking about pieces of paper that the country made up. And it's a right for Christians to condemn those who violate the laws without also asking hard questions about who's made the laws. Can we seek justice in both regards? Now, to my fellow immigrants, I think it's easy to disconnect from the conversation about laws because as immigrants, we have no control over it. If we're left at the hands of politicians or the citizens of this country. But we default in finding hope that an amnesty or that something better than DACA is going to come around. Or we put our hope in the loss of this land. But this also is a dangerous place to be in. As you may have figured out by now, it doesn't bring stability, but it brings a lot of doubt, pressure, fear. And I'd encourage you to rather place hope in God than on the next president or the next change of law. Lastly, I want to talk about the issue of regulation on who enters as opposed to open borders. It's difficult because it's so far removed from most of the current discussion on the issue. And so to talk about current issues, we have to look at history for a minute. The history of immigration laws in the U.S. is tied to both economic anxiety and racial ethnic anxiety, neither of which are things that should be driving us as Christians. When the gold rush was booming in California, there wasn't evidence of significant animosity against Chinese immigrants, I mean migrants, when the area became crowded, then there was a rise of anti-Chinese sentiment and a push to restrict the entry of new workers. It wasn't simply about cultural differences. It was also about concerns of too many workers and the struggles of competition. A decade later, as the transcontinental railroad was being built, the railroad company found they could pay the Chinese migrants less than what the native-born whites wanted for wages. The wage issue led to an increase in racial animosity in the American West. 
It may have started as a supply-demand issue with labor, but it very quickly turned to avert anti-Asian racism. And we're left asking, what is the Christian to do? What is the root problem there? Is it the workers not being content with their wages or the railroad being willing to treat people differently? And what is the correct solution? Even now, U.S. laws are set up in a way where those with economic means have an easier path, while those who are fleeing poverty and crime have almost no legal options. James says it's unjust to treat people better because of their wealth. But that's what the immigration system preferences. And just to wrap us up, in 2018, over 40,000 Central Americans came to the U.S. borders asking for asylum. They're fleeing countries that have some of the highest murder rates in the world. They are coming because they want to survive. They're not simply economic migrants looking for the American dream, but people who are at real risk of being murdered if they return. And almost all will be denied under the current system our country is in. So I want to leave you with some questions to ponder. What does loving our neighbor look like at a national scale? What if that meant that it would make economic problems for our current neighbors? Do we choose not to love one set of neighbors in preference for the other? Thanks, guys. All right, so my name is Jalen, and I am one of the campus pastors at UT Arlington. Um, and so I'm going to be talking really briefly about the upcoming election in November and sort of how I'm thinking through it. And so I do want to take you through my upbringing and kind of how I thought about it over the years, as well as kind of the principles that God has given me now to think about it in November. Um, but I know that if I start there, a lot of us are going to have this distracting question in the back of our minds the entire time of, okay, but what do I actually do in November? What are you actually going to do in November? And so I'm going to get that out of the way right now and say that I do not know what I'm doing in November, and I do not know what you should do in November. And I know that that might be disappointing uh, to a lot of you, um, and if that's you, I don't blame you, because our culture places a premium on choosing correctly and on being right, regardless of your reason. Regardless of your reason, to those on the left, a vote for the right is a vote for white supremacy. To those on the right, a vote for the left is a vote for the murder of babies. To those on either side, a vote for a third party is a vote thrown away, and abstaining from voting is apathy, regardless of your reasoning. There's so much pressure on us to just, uh, not just to make a choice for the right reasons, but to make the one right choice. And unfortunately, uh, I think that this way of thinking has infiltrated the church. Um, we kind of talked about last time, we like to co-opt Jesus and use him as the poster child for our particular political views. You think Jesus would get behind a candidate who is for the murder of babies? You think Jesus would get behind a candidate who loves to lock immigrants in cages? And so we're left believing that Jesus's chief concern is that we make the right choice when it comes to our vote. That if he were in our situation, he would take one definitive course of action. And so we've got to uncover the mystery of what that is or else he'll be angry with us. But as is usually the case, the ways of the world are not the ways of Jesus. And so Brandon read this passage earlier, but I wanted to reiterate it. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 19 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Throughout his ministry, but most of all at the cross, Jesus showed us that his ways are so at odds with the ways of the world um, that when he came to save the world, the world chose to kill him. When he came to love the world, the world hated him. And when he came to reveal wisdom to the world, the world counted him foolish. And so if God's chief concern for us is not the chief concern that the world has for us, which is being right or making the right decision in November, what is his chief concern? Um, So I would argue that it's whatever decision we come to, that we make it with full dependence on him. That whatever decision we come to, we make it with full dependence on him. And so why do I think that? How did I come to this conclusion? Um, So anyone who's been through the Focus Apprenticeship will tell you that one of the main motifs and themes throughout scripture is this choice between eating two fruit, or these fruit that come from these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That in Genesis, we're given this framework or this lens through which to view our decision-making and the decision-making that we see in scripture. And so for starters, we have, of course, Adam and Eve, and they're primary sin is not that they ate from this tree that was just arbitrarily decided to be not worthy of eating from, uh, but that in eating that specific fruit, they were trying to um, come to a knowledge of good and evil on their own, whereas God wanted them to depend on him to teach it to them. And so it seems like God was less concerned with Adam and Eve knowing what is right and what is wrong than he was about them depending on him to reveal it to them. In Judges, we're told that the problem with Israel at the time was not that everyone did what was evil, but that everyone did what was right in his, o- his own eyes. And so it's not the morality of their decisions necessarily, uh, but how they come to their decisions that bothers God. And then in the Gospels, the problem with the Pharisees was not that they wanted to uphold the law. The law was a good gift from God that Jesus himself followed and upheld. The problem was their approach to the law was like eating the wrong kind of fruit. That rather than taking this law and rejoicing that it revealed to them the character of God, uh, they took it and they made it their God. And then they used it to define good and evil for themselves, and they totally missed God in the process. To the point that when the God who gave them that law came in human form um, and used it as was intended, they nailed him to a tree. And so I say this to say, Uh, God's chief concern is not that we figure out the rules or formulas on right and wrong. It's that we seek to know him and emulate him in all that we do. So, come November, uh, does God care what we actually do? I would say yes. But does he care way more about how we come to decide what we do? I think that's also a yes. And so, even though I don't yet know what I'm going to do, I do want to share with you um, sort of the why Um, that's going to go behind that decision, what I'm thinking through, and some principles that I think God has shown me, but also just principles I kind of adhered to growing up. Um, So I grew up in a Christian family, and we were conservative in most senses of the word. So we didn't really listen to secular music. Um, We didn't believe in evolution because, you know, Bible, literal, um, (laughs) as we defined literal. And when it came to politics, we certainly believed that, for the most part, the Republican Party accurately depicted the values of Jesus, namely trying to make abortion illegal and trying to keep gay marriage illegal. Uh, I said illegal twice, but in different ways. I don't know why I did that. (laughs) That had no rhetorical effect. (laughs) So 
Uh, yeah, but anyway, because these things were sinful, and our job as Christians was to use the government to prevent sin from taking place. And so growing up, I had inherited these two main values when it came to politics, that one, as a Christian, I needed to vote, and two, as a Christian, I needed to vote Republican. And so that, to me, was what it meant uh, to be involved in politics as a Christian. Um, so as with a lot of us, my time and focus as a student taught me to ask a lot of questions. Um, and it had me questioning for the first time a lot of these values that I took for granted my entire life. And so I rethought my beliefs about the Bible and about who Jesus was and about who I was in light of that. And it did even have me, you know, rethinking my political values. Was voting Republican the only way? Did I want the government to outlaw something just because I viewed it as sinful? And though this processing was good, uh, the result was that in my attempts to separate myself from kind of the you know, the values that I'd inherited, I over-rotated and began identifying myself as this liberal thinker without much thought as to what that really meant either. Um, and so I definitely think that Paul's definition of spiritual infancy in Ephesians 4.14 described me well. I was someone who was tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people. You see, my deconstruction of the values that I inherited left me with a lot of questions and very few answers. And that left me really insecure uh, because I needed to know where I stood. I needed a camp to fall into and a way to identify myself because apparently identifying myself as a disciple was not enough. So come 2016, I'm this new enlightened liberal thinker. Um, and then I'm faced with actually acting on this newfound wisdom. And so I look in front of me at the choice before me and it's a choice between Trump and Hillary, and all of that just goes out the window. Because I'm not, at this point, just faced with a decision between red and blue, or between thoughtfulness or ignorance, or between childhood and adulthood thought. I'm faced with a choice between two candidates who, in my estimation, were very unchristlike and who stood for things um, that were unchristlike as well. And so my solution was, rather than engage um, and do the hard work of seeking God on the issue, I was just going to disengage, not think about it, not wrestle, vote third party, and just abdicate responsibility for the election to other people who were more educated and knew what they were talking about. But then, to make matters worse, I went into the voting booth with that decision, and then I thought about the possibility of one of those candidates being president and the potential effect it would have on my own personal quality of life. And so because of that fear... I made a split-second decision to vote for the other candidate, not because of conviction, not because of prayer, not because I sought the Spirit, um, but out of fear. And so I was so embarrassed by my lack of an answer in 2016 that I resolved, come next election, to have an opinion. So where would I begin? Who would I listen to? What would I read? Well, it just so happens that there was a student uh, in my life that year who was very into conservative political commentary. And so... That year, I had acquainted myself with some of the voices that he was listening to, ironically, to get him uh, to not pledge his allegiance to the Republican Party, but to pledge his allegiance to Jesus. But that year, in my desperation to have a very strong, solid opinion, I ran full speed ahead to the only voices that I knew that could help me form a very strong and very quickly formulated opinion. And so began a two-year deep dive into conservative ideology. And so for two years, I straight up absorbed all of the like talking points of 
uh, stereotypical conservative ideology without much of a second thought. So the wage gap between men and women, definitely fake. Socialism, definitely theft. Affirmative action, definitely racism. The current interpretation of the Second Amendment, definitely absolute. And so I'm not here to say that any of those particular uh, viewpoints was necessarily right or wrong. Um, but what was wrong was how I came to adopt those viewpoints. So for two years, I listened to nothing but educated and well-spoken right-wing pundits um, destroying younger, more uh, naive liberal thinkers with facts and logic. Um, and to be honest, I never really gave opposing viewpoints the attention that they were due. And to make things worse, uh, my intention to be informed, but also my intention to be entertained, were very intermingled. The line was not very well defined. And so um, I didn't really have my critical thinking cap on as I was listening to these ideas. And so as a result um, of my quest to have an opinion rather than to seek the truth, I noticed a change to my heart. So I viewed people who disagreed with me at best as idiots and at worst as, or what, at worst, as idolatrous, especially if they claim to be disciples. And it got to the point where seeing what I would call liberal ideology in media or in my conversations with other ministers made me so angry. Like I couldn't engage in conversation with people who disagreed with me. My heart became callous to the experiences of people who had lived very different lives from me. And what's scary about this is that these effects on my heart could just as easily have happened um, if I were listening to more liberal voices. Um, I don't think it's just because I was listening to right-wing thought. I think it's because in my pride, uh, being right trumped being like Jesus. And having an opinion trumped having love for others. And finding a political identity trumped finding my identity in Jesus. So where am I now? Well, thankfully, I had some people in my life who cared enough about me to encourage me to stop drinking the conservative juice um, just for a while. And as a result, I really do think I've come to think about this a little bit more like a disciple. Um, and so the thing is, this has only left me with more questions and fewer answers, um, but I'm okay with that. I think part of the suffering that we undergo as disciples is not fitting perfectly into the categories of this world. Um, after all, we serve a God who fits so poorly into this world's categories that he was nailed to a tree by the religious and the irreligious the wealthy and the poor. And I think if Jesus were to come today, perhaps in a similar fashion, the one thing that the right and the left could agree on and rally together to do is to out Jesus because he offends them. So, trying to get through this. So like I said, I don't know what I'm doing in November, um, but how am I going to decide? So there are a few principles, I think in your outline, there's like a list of six of them. Um, that I've come to believe is true that hopefully will guard my heart and will be helpful in guarding your heart as we depend on God and try to figure out what's best in this area. So uh, for me, the most important principle to keep in mind is that as a disciple, I serve a gracious God. God is gracious. He has patience with us as we try to figure out how to best serve him. He doesn't have a posture toward us that's waiting for us to mess up, but he rejoices in our attempts to know him and to be like him. And so this has two implications. First, we don't need to worry so much about making the wrong decision when voting. It is true that as disciples, we need to be thoughtful about whatever decision we make, but it's also true that whatever we decide, God loves us. He has mercy and forgiveness and patience. 
So we don't need to be paralyzed by this fear of messing up. The second implication is that we need to have tremendous grace for those who don't do what we do. It's entirely possible for someone to love Jesus and the scriptures and justice just as much as we do and do a different thing. It doesn't mean they're idiots. It doesn't mean they don't love God. And scripture says we need to have the grace for others that God has with us. The second principle, and I think this is maybe of equal importance as the first, um, is that as a disciple, I serve a God who is in control. God was pursuing justice before we showed up, and he's going to continue doing that long after we're gone. And he pursues it better and more fiercely than we ever could. So yes, he asks us to get up and partner with him in that and to be his hands and feet. But no matter who ends up being elected, no one is going to thwart God's agenda. He is ultimately responsible for looking out for us, looking out for our country and our world, and he won't do a bad job of it. The next one is that as a disciple, I don't have the option of being apathetic. Thinking about this is hard work. It's messy. And so we are often tempted to just take the path of least resistance. For some, that means to vote according to the liberal ideology that generally characterizes our age group. For others, it means um, yeah, voting according to the conservative ideology that generally characterizes the Bible Belt. And for others, um, it's to disengage entirely, not think about it, and not vote because you don't want to think about it. Um, but I would warn you that the one time Jesus explicitly mentioned taking the path of least resistance, he said it was the path that lead to dis- led to destruction, and narrow was the path that led to life. So don't let apathy be how you make this decision. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The next one is that as a disciple, I'm not called to be an expert in everything. Jesus called us to use everything we've got to love him and to love people, but not to devote the same amount of energy into every particular aspect of that. So for example, he calls us to care about the homeless, but he doesn't call us all into homeless ministry. He calls us all to care about the spreading of the gospel, but he doesn't call us all to be overseas missionaries. And so while I think God's call to love our neighbor does mean we need to be thoughtful about how we vote, I don't think that means we need to all be experts in politics. My vote for president is one out of millions cast every four years. I'm going to be a lot more effective at loving people for the kingdom if I invest my time soaking my heart in God's word or praying or engaging in one-on-one ministry or engaging in evangelism, or in trying to adopt the character of Christ. The next principle is that as a disciple, I need to decide to put my hope in God. My primary citizenship is not in America, but in the kingdom. I'm not primarily a Republican or a Democrat, but a disciple of Jesus. And so my hope is not in our elected officials or in the policies they stand for that may or may not even come true, but in our heavenly king and the realities that he has promised will come to pass. Jesus is making everything new, everything. Which means, as we said before, he's not going to rule like a democratic or Republican president. And so if I find myself aligning perfectly with either party, something has gone wrong. We're not trying to align with either side of the aisle, but with God. And so this also means that not voting is an option. Our cultural narrative tells us that as an American, it's your duty to vote. But if you sense God calling you to not vote, your duty is to listen to that. 
Final principle is that as a disciple, I need to make glorifying God my chief aim. This means that equality is not my chief aim. Justice is not my chief aim. If we view these things as our main goals and God just becomes a means to the end of achieving those, we'll end up defining equality and justice on our own terms and using God as a tool. And so we'll be eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if we view glorifying God as our primary goal, and then equality and justice and the pursuit of those things are just a means to the end of glorifying God, we'll be eating from the tree of life and we'll be allowing him to shape how we view those things. Okay, so to wrap up, like Peter did with abortion, I'd like to end by putting my cards on the table. So based on these principles, where am I at practically for this upcoming election? Do I think I'm obligated to think about how I want to use my vote or lack thereof? Yes. Do I think that means I'm obligated to vote? No. Do I think that there are policies on the left and on the right that uphold the value of human life? Yes. Do I think there are policies on both sides that diminish the value of human life? Yes. Do I think there are policies on both sides that love people like Jesus loved people? Yes. But I also think that both sides have a misunderstanding of what it means to love people. Do I think both sides are dishonest about how much they love people? Yes. Is the oppression of those living in this country without a voice a big enough deal to me to draw me to vote for the Democratic Party? Yes. Is the oppression of the unborn in this country without a voice a big enough deal to me to draw me to vote for the Republican Party? Yes. Does the thought of either party's particular candidate scare me, like if them being president scare me? Yes. Do I think fear, the fact that it scares me, do I think that should be the driving force behind my vote? No, I think love should be the driving force behind my vote. Is a third party vote or a decision not to vote a waste of my voice? I don't think so. Is a third party vote or a decision not to vote the best use of my voice? I'm not really sure. Do I think there's any way my county or state won't vote Republican regardless of who I vote for? Probably not, but that shouldn't lead to apathy. How do I weigh the personal ethics of the person I vote for against their platform? I don't know. Do I think the best way to love people is to introduce them to Jesus? Yes. Do I want a president who is going to protect my freedom to do so? Yes. But do I also want a president who isn't going to make Christians look dumb in the process? Yes. Do I think God is gracious to me and sovereign over what happens in this world, no matter who I vote for? Yes. So take these principles, these ideas, and do with them what you will. Um, but let this community be a place where it's okay to disagree, where it's okay to not have solid conclusions, and it's okay to make mistakes, where it's okay to think out loud and process with one another. And whatever you do, don't forget that you serve a gracious God who is in control. Unmute. Can I have the TV on? Um, hello, hello. Should I even bother going? Uh, I don't know. I'll shift over this way. All right. Straw poll. Everybody raise your hands if you think I should go. Uh, it doesn't matter. I can't see you. So, hello. The first shall be last, so I am here. We have talked a lot today. Uh, we talked a lot last week, and now you know what pizza theology is all about. 
If you didn't believe me when I told you it last week, I bet you now do that pizza theology is about questions, not so much about answers. And uh, yeah, you know, you'll learn to love that frustration. Um, so yeah, so let me keep saying what we've been saying. Our value as a community and a ministry is to love God with all our minds. We're not here to give you answers and we don't always have the answers. I wish I had all the answers. But if we can teach you how to think, then when you're done with college and you encounter situations in a world that is new and changing and different from the one that I've experienced, then you'll still know how to be a Jesus follower. You'll still know how to think like a Jesus follower. And just having answers to memorize and follow isn't how that will happen. So I hope you've enjoyed the questions that have been raised, the few answers that we have scattered throughout. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm gonna, jump, I'm gonna jump in. Hello, I'm Peter. I'm a campus pastor at UTD and I am your final speaker today before the Q&A. So we've been talking about how we're living uh, in this already not yet of the kingdom of God, right? How do we live in this tension where the world is imperfect, but we strive for a perfect world? Um, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not fulfilled. It's present, but not consummated. How do we live in God's kingdom when the world is also still very much here? Well, there are hundreds and thousands of books by Christian people on this very topic, um, especially in concerning how we deal with politics, like Jalen said, and two very famous philosophies that are indicative of what I would think are the further ends of the Christian political spectrum, not the American political spectrum. The Christian political spectrum are the Anabaptists and the Christian realists. All right, I'm gonna talk about this spectrum because I believe that we are all somewhere on here and I want to help you think through uh, explicitly, logically, where am I and where should I be? Um, and this spectrum I'm using kind of goes from the already to the not yet. Um, yeah, so the Anabaptists are kind of on this already side, right? The kingdom of God is already here. And they stress that side of the, the equation. Christian realists are really stressing the not yet, that this world is still here and we've got to live in it. Um, but I'll go into that more. So they both start from that assumption of this already not yet and that, participa that participation in politics requires compromise, right? While engaging in politics, compromise is inevitable. Um, compromise of values, giving up certain things to gain certain things, um, but they reach very different conclusions based on that assumption. So if you wanna know more about the Anabaptists, you can read books by a guy called John Howard Yoder. Um, he has one called The Politics of Jesus. Um, it's, in, it's in the resources um, if you want to remember that. And what they believed was that because because compromise is inevitable if you participate in politics, Christians should not participate in politics at all. Nothing. We shouldn't run for office. We shouldn't vote. Instead, we should be a city on a hill, living as if we're living in God's kingdom already amongst ourselves, right? Because that's the only place we're going to be capable of doing that, if, is if we live with the people who hold our same values, um, and then we don't need to worry about what the world is doing because we're going to show them how it should really look like, all right? 
we're going to be so good, our society is going to be so good that they'll want to do it for themselves as well. And then we don't need to go into the mire and muck of political compromise. They also believed in total pacifism, um, not just about nonviolence, but about not wielding power at all. So that's why they don't involve themselves in politics. We shouldn't wield power at all. I um, mean, you have to look no further than Jesus and what he did. You know, what Brandon was talking about earlier today. Jesus didn't wield power. He didn't seek to upend the political structures of his day. He didn't seek to gain, uh, you know, relevance or be spectacular or use uh, power for his own gain to just to be powerful. Um, and like Jesus, this refusal to engage in politics is still a political move. It shows that we are unwilling to compromise our values. Like we are not going to engage in it. And this refusal of power is not a withdrawal from society. It is rather a major negative intervention, meaning like I'm not doing something. Negative intervention within the process of social change. A refusal to use unworthy means even for what seems to be a worthy end. The end does not justify the means in any situation whatsoever. We do not compromise anything. So yeah, so that was a quote from, from uh, The Politics of Jesus. And that, that book is considered by Christianity today to be the fifth most uh, important religious book of the 20th century. So, I mean, I would highly recommend reading it. It is very good. Um, in it, he also says, uh, the point of pacifism is not that one can attain all of one's legitimate ends without using violent means. It's rather that our readiness to renounce our legitimate ends whenever they cannot be attained by legitimate, by legitimate means itself constitutes our participation in the triumphant suffering of the Lamb. In case you didn't understand that quote, I also kind of butchered the reading. It just means that when we say we are not going to participate in the use of violence or of power, we're not saying we can achieve everything we want without that. We're saying we, we're saying we really can't, but that's okay. We are participating in Jesus's suffering and in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection by not wielding our power and not using violence. We recognize that we're not going to get everything and that's okay. So that's the Anabaptists, one extreme. The other extreme, Christian realists. Um, if you want to read more about this, I highly, highly recommend Reinhold Niebuhr. All right, not to be confused with his equally famous Christian philosopher brother, Richard Niebuhr. I mean, what were their parents thinking about that one? Uh, Reinhold, we're talking about Reinhold today. If the Anabaptist side emphasizes the already, Christian realism emphasizes the not yet. Christian realism is very aware of the sin and immorality of humanity and what, uh, and what we naturally tend towards and want to do, right? We want to be selfish. We want to wield power. And even if we're good about it in a group or it by ourselves, that we won't do that, when we get in a group, it's more likely that we're selfish. It's more likely that we, that we wield power. We get peer pressured. We want to go with the flow or at best our unselfishness for others becomes selfishness for the group, right? Reinhold Niebuhr was very concerned about how um, the, what's good for the individual, what's moral for the individual doesn't translate well for the group. Um, take patriotism. He talks about patriotism a lot. At its best, 
patriotism is about caring for our neighbors more than ourselves, right? We want what's best for the country because it'll be better for the people around us. But then what if what's best for the country is worse for another country? Do we then choose the unselfish thing for all of us, for the entire country, sacrifice everyone's well-being so that we can be unselfish towards other nations? In a way, we can interpret that as selfish. At the least, it's a compromise, right? We have to weigh the lives of the people of this country, the others in this country, with the lives of the others in others' countries, in other countries. It gets messy. Society gets messy. It, it gets harder when we have to make decisions as a group, not just for me as an individual. That's one of Niebuhr's uh, main points is individual versus society. It's hard. It's not the same. And then there's the theory of competing goods, right? And we have to weigh things. We can't all have everything. In order to have more of this, we need to sacrifice this. Uh, if, we, if we can go back to what I was talking about last week, about the state of nature and having laws that are good that protect us, um, I mentioned that like having laws is good because then I don't need to be afraid of you killing me or you taking my stuff. But in order for us to, ha to be safe, in order for us, for us to have those laws, we need to give up some freedoms. I give up the freedom to take what I want, to do what I want, to go where I want so that you and I can be safe, right? We can't have total freedom and total safety in this world. Um, I give up my freedom of driving around without insurance or a license so that you and I can be safer as a group, protected financially on the road from accidents and unsafe driving, right? There are compromises, there's give and take. And so given that, how do we make our world better? How do we as Christians make our world better? Well, according to Christian realists, it's by fighting power with power, or as Niebuhr puts it, coercion. Uh, he says, <clears throat> the responsible leader of a political community is forced to use coercion to gain his ends. He may, as Mr. Gandhi, make every effort to keep his instrument under the dominion of a spiritual ideal, but he must use it, and it may be necessary at times to sacrifice a degree of moral purity for political effectiveness. So according to Niebuhr, we can't shy away from using power and coercion, even threats to get our way, right? What are, what are boycotts? That, those are economic threats, right? Economic coercion. Because if we don't use it tempered with our religious ethic and ideal, then the world, then the world will just go the way it wants, and it will be a very dark place because of it. So we need to use power to corral the sins and selfishness of the world to a better place, even if it means dirtying our hands a little and participating in the guilt of government. Now that might sound like ends justify the means talk right there, and it is. Not all means are justified, but definitely some. Compromise has to happen, so compromise. And those are the extremes <laughs> on the Christian engagement in the political spectrum. And there's everything in between. That's the mix of the two. So I'm going to send us off to a break, a quick three-minute break, to answer these questions, and you can talk about them with a partner. Where on the spectrum do you think you fall on? Where do you, and then where do you think God is leading you? All right, three-minute break.
All right, I hope you had fun on your break um, and with your discussion questions. Yeah, on this spectrum, I'll tell you where I fall, and I think I fall more on the side of the uh, Christian realism. I think that's how my actions have, um, you know, played themselves out in my life. Um, but I think in my mind, I, I want to be on the other, more on the other side, on the Anabaptist side. Um, but you know what, 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 I, what you think and what you do don't always, don't, don't always coincide very well. Um, and I think God wants me to, yeah, really think about how do I place um, the onus of responsibility on the government rather than myself. Um, so, but I'm not going to be able to tell you where you should be on the spectrum. Um, much smarter men than I have been debate, debating it for much longer than any of us have been alive. Um, I will tell you that there are many criticisms for both sides. Um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was influenced by Niebuhr. Um, the civil rights movement was influenced by Niebuhr. Um, they used power, but I think we can see, we can try to examine what kind of power was that using and in, in what way was it using. But on the other side, a total withdrawal from political, any political stance, um, political engagement would have resulted in people not participating in the civil rights movement at all. And was that okay? Um, I, Martin Luther King Jr. had very choice words for those people um, in letter from a Birmingham jail. So there are criticisms on both, um, both sides. Um, but I also think there's a lot um, on the spectrum a lot of positions on the spectrum that we should all be on. Um, God called David to take up the sword sometimes. He also said he wouldn't build the temple um, during David's lifetime because David was a man of war. Um, I think, I mean, it was a very different time back then, but the church can do and be many things to many people. Unity does not mean uniformity. Some of us may be called to total pacifism and some of us may not be. Um, so I'm not going to be able to tell you where you should be. Um, yeah, and what, what Brandon talked about earlier about the uses of power are really bad uses of power, but I think we would be um, ignorant to say that Jesus was not powerful and did not use um, power in very uh, pointed ways. You know, when he calls out Pharisees, is that not powerful? Um, when he dies on the cross, is that not powerful? Um, but power is very different. Power is very interesting. Um, but now that I've confused you guys greatly on the Christian political spectrum, <laughs> um, go read those books. Uh, it's po The Politics of Jesus, and I think it's Moral Man and Immoral Society. They have broadened my idea of political engagement more than any other books have, um, especially any other government 101 textbook has. Uh, but what I can do today is talk through three things we all should do, we all have the power to do, and three things we all should stay away from. Three things that we should stay away from, regardless of where we stand on the spectrum of Christian political engagement. So what do we do? One, we do what's right. Whether it's hard or not, we do it. Whether it's effective or not, like Brandon said, we do it. You know, the civil rights movement it's something, we don't often, uh, it's something we don't often talk about, study, or think about is how controversial it really was. Uh, we teach it and learn it as if it was a foregone conclusion, as if it was just the next natural step for history to take, for civil rights to take, for blacks in America to take. 
and it wasn't. There was great opposition. Um, and we think that because we are Christians and we're good and we get it, of course we would be on the side of right, that we would be marching with them um, as if we would have even agreed with their sentiments. Um, that letter from a Birmingham jail was written in response to multiple pastors, many of whom had doctorates who disagreed with him. They said they didn't disagree with his message, but the way he was doing it. All right? So it's not as easy as, as saying, of course I would do what's right. It's not. Because, whether, because there's a couple questions that we can think through. It's just like, one, do we agree with the sentiment to begin with? Two, do we agree with how it's being played out? And then three, am I, I, I going to make enough effort to get up off my lazy butt to do something about it? Right? Um, can we, do we think enough like a Christian that we can look past the fog of our society's culture? Um, that we can look past the fog of our own sinfulness and laziness and see when the gospel is here. When Jesus comes around, do we drop our nets and go, even if it's hard? And when we agree, are we willing to get up off our butts and do something about it? And then back to uh, what Ryan was saying earlier about sacrifice. Am I willing to sacrifice, you know, my quality of life right now for the future? Maybe I don't get to reap the benefits now. Um, but am I willing to sacrifice now so that my kids or my kids' kids, or even if I have no kids, so that future generations will be able to experience something closer to God's kingdom? Am I willing to sacrifice that right now? We do what's right, regardless of whether it's hard, regardless of whether it's easy, regardless of whether we have to sacrifice or not. We do what's right. Number two, we speak truth to power. Whether it's through the way we live, the issues we speak up about, we don't shy away from the truth, especially when it could hurt us socially, economically, or physically. We come from a long line of people who spoke God's word to people, powerful people who could do much more to them than anyone can do to us today. The president can't demand our execution or torture us legally. Many of the kings and emperors that our ancestors spoke to could, and many of them did but we stand our ground even when it's tough. From Esther to the prophets, to the early church and Christian martyrs throughout history, we have been a people who are willing to say God's truth to everyone, including and especially to those that God has put into positions of power and have immense sway over the treatment of his creation. And number three, oh, we protect the powerless. You know, another piece of our long tradition is protecting the powerless. The Bible talks about orphans 44 times, widows 77 times, and the foreigner and stranger 98 times. These were the poor and vulnerable in those times and often in our time too. I don't know of many foster kids who are living lives of luxury. So let me take, take a moment to talk about social welfare then because that's often how we see our, our uh, way of protecting the powerless. Now again, to put my money where my mouth is, I am for social welfare. But I also understand the criticisms, the other side. Why is it the government's job to take care of people? Well, I'd say it's because people aren't taking care of people. But it's really our job to do it. Because what the government does can't get you to heaven. 
Just because the government gave $39.2 billion in foreign aid in 2019 doesn't mean I get to say I gave $39.2 billion. And I don't think I want to because that's less than 1% of the government's budget. I don't want to say that I gave less than 1% to, foreign, to foreigners, uh, to the foreigner and stranger. So just because the government is taking care of the poor doesn't mean I get to say that that counts in my bucket so I don't have to do it anymore. All right, whether you're for social welfare or, welfare or not, the number one question we should all be asking ourselves as Christ followers is what am I doing for the poor and vulnerable? All right, just because the government is doing something doesn't mean I get to stop doing anything. Um, and that's what the government, uh, and that's what is so uh, confusing, so beautiful, so frustrating about the government and about our politics is that we generally agree what the good life is about. We as Americans generally concur that we should love our neighbors and to treat each other well and to look out for each other, but we just differ in how we get there. Republicans think it's the individual's job to take care of their neighbor, but the reality is not enough people do. Not even every Republican takes care of their neighbor, but Democrats think it's the government's job to take care of our neighbors, and then we all minimize our taxes to avoid giving the government money to give to our neighbors. Um, not every Democrat takes care of their neighbor. So we agree on what should, uh, what the value is. We just don't agree on how to get there, all right? And we can see the beauty and the frustration in that. But regardless of what politics says and what the government is doing, we need to protect the powerless that is what God has asked of you. So regardless of what government does, regardless of where you are on that political equation, what will you do for the powerless? All right, quickly, quickly, what don't we do? Number one, we don't live as hypocrites. I put our blanks uh, as we don't because I didn't want you guys to write down live as hypocrites and have that stuck in your mind. So we don't live as hypocrites. Jesus had very harsh words for hypocrites, often calling the Pharisees hypocrites. And in Greek, a hypocrite just means an actor. And we are not actors. We are God's people and our God does not change. He is not two-faced. Now that doesn't mean that we don't change. I think we have to have humility and understanding that we can be wrong. Um, but God is not wrong. God does not change. And that means truth does not change. And so we don't get to just flip-flop based on what's popular or not, based on what society is saying or what we read on Facebook. We can change our minds based on whether we think we were wrong about something. Um, and I think humility, humility is about saying, I was wrong and now I'm changing my mind. Not, ooh, uh, this is this is more popular right now. So I'm gonna say this and pretend this never happened. Um, we don't get to just follow what's popular. We don't get to hide what we really think and pretend to go along with what's popular just to get ahead. We stand on convictions. We are a people of conviction. We are not hypocritical. Uh, Matthew 24, 51. Um, I'm gonna just let, uh, I'm, I'm gonna skip over that, but it basically just says like, Jesus says that if we are not doing what's right when the master comes back, then he's going to assign us a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hypocrisy is not just um, a, a little thing. Hypocrisy is a very big thing. 
Hypocrisy is a sin to deceive others into thinking you're, you're, you're something that you're not or you believe something that, you're not, you, that you don't. That is a sin. To get ahead through those things, that is wrong. And I think God would rather us be wrong and hold the wrong convictions than to be right and pre- or than to be wrong and pretend otherwise or be right and pretend otherwise um, just because that's what everyone else is doing and that's what everyone else is saying. Secondly, we don't worry about being on the right side of history. When did history become the arbiter of what's right or wrong? When did time become the truth teller? And when did our time, the 21st century, become the end all be all? That what we decide now is the moral judgment of all things. You see, when we break down these things, you realize the assumptions we make. It's so narcissistic of us to think that we've evolved to the place where we are smarter than the people in the past. We have more right than the people in the past, that we get to judge the people in the past. We have different things right and different things wrong. Time isn't some magical thing where we steadily get better and better and smarter and smarter until God's kingdom arrives because we've ushered it in. We don't and we can't. We try to make things a little better for our world, knowing full well that there are other people who will make it worse and we won't achieve utopia. We won't achieve God's kingdom. And so we wait until Jesus comes back, right? So we don't worry about being on the right side of history because whose history is gonna make things right, the world's or God's? So which leads to my last thing that we don't do is we don't get discouraged. It can feel like a hopeless battle, Why try when we know it won't lead to a perfect world? Why try to make the world a better place when other people will just make it worse? Why try to progress when progress isn't guaranteed? The world could slip back into and has slipped back into using one another for our own gain. Racism, genocide, murder, hatred, thousands and thousands of years, and we still don't get it. So what's the point? Let's just pack it in, keep our heads down, and wait until we die and get to be with Jesus. But no, remember back to the very first point I made, we are an eschatological people. Just because we know we won't be able to fulfill God's kingdom here and now doesn't mean we haven't tasted of its goodness. So should we hide it under a bushel? No. (laughs) We know it's good. We have tasted of its goodness. And so even a little bit of it here on earth that may do nothing to push the needle closer to the time that it's here in full is still worth it because we got to live in a time where the world was a little bit more the way it should be. We do the right thing even when it's hard, even when it's unpopular, and even when it doesn't change much because God's kingdom is good and we want people to experience that goodness. We're living in the already not yet And we should think like Jesus' followers who are living in that. And so I'll end with Revelation. Jesus has words for seven churches asking them to be convicted, to stand firm, to overcome. And at the end of each of his letters, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give this. To the one who is victorious, I will bring this. And he is encouraging us to keep our chins up. He knows that it's hard. And we know that thinking through all of this is hard but it's worth it because God's kingdom is a beautiful place. And if we can remember that, if we can keep that vision of what done right looks like, we might be able to do a little bit right right now. And it's worth it to experience it here. 
It's worth it to help others realize what true reality really looks like. And we don't get discouraged because we know he's coming to make it all right again. In Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says in verse seven, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. And then again in verse 12 and 13, he says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then our Bible ends with him saying it one last time and with our response. And I think it's a beautiful end to our time together, our official time together this evening. It says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thank you. You guys can take a brief break while we set up for our Q&A. Here we are, back for Q&A. So I will draw up uh, Jalen and Adriana. Okay. I was, I was muted. All right, so we're back. I'll pull up uh, Jalen and Adriana as we go. We'll get through as many of these as we can. I know we got a question right at the very last minute asking if all these resources, books, and things that we've referenced could be posted somewhere. The answer is no, definitely not. No, Paul will do that um, and make sure that we have those. I think most of them are referenced in the packet if you want to look there as well, but we'll try and post them somewhere on, on social media or something like that. So I'm going to make some judgment calls on these questions, things that I think we've already covered. Um, you obviously always have access to us as your campus pastors uh, if we don't spend too much time. So I'm trying to kind of keep it um, narrowed down a little bit. So let's start with um, some questions that probably touch on, on my talk the most that came in during my talk, and I'll see what these guys have to reflect on. Um, but uh, one person asked, and I thought this was a, a good question, of why does sort of asking the question matter if the Bible outlaws the behavior? Um, which I get, there's probably a lot of assumptions I'm going to have to make reading that question. But I think it seems like to me that, that what's being asked is like, if the Bible says something's wrong, then shouldn't we outlaw it? And I would say, um, I think there's a lot of things that the Bible makes judgments on that we don't necessarily deal with at a governmental level. Uh, they didn't necessarily deal with at a governmental level in the scripture. Uh, so you see the prophets being very concerned in the Old Testament with things that, the, uh, that weren't mandated in the law. And so, um, you know, God will hold us accountable for not taking care of uh, poor people and things like that, but he doesn't mandate exactly what generosity looks like, and he may call us to different things. So, yeah, I think, I think we still have to ask the question. It's like, all right, yeah, there is a question of right and wrong, but then we have to go further and say, all right, that, that answers the individual question. What do we do with that collectively? I don't know. Anything you guys want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it really is to that, to that uh, issue of how far do we legislate morality that we kind of talked about last week, right? Um, and we touched on. 
it's it's not whether we legislate morality, it's how far. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the how far, that's the question that we're asking, is not, you know, whether it's right or wrong. Um, that's, that's not the question we're asking. The question we're asking is, do, can we slash should we mandate it for all people in this, you know, nation? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I hear one more person say you can't legislate morality, I'm like, that's what we do. We legislate morality all the time. Uh, we also legislate a lot of things that are uh, don't have anything to do with morality. But uh, we, we absolutely prevent people from doing things that we think are, are wicked and that we all sort of agree are not good. Um, okay, another question. I'm currently studying to go into politics. Do you have any tips on how to deal with people, even those who commit acts of oppression, in ways that are loving and merciful, where's the line between justice and mercy? Man, that's a very challenging question. Um, you know, I think Peter's talk gets at some of that. This, if, if you go into politics, you will have to make some compromises. Um, and, and maybe that's, uh, you know, I, I was reflecting as, as Peter was sharing, I was like, in some ways, like, it's not just politics, it's I lead an organization, and that means that I wield certain kinds of power uh, as the boss, as the one who decides how much people get paid or whether they get paid or whether they stay on staff. And um, so we're all, you know, and and I have to ask myself the question, like, am I misusing that power in some way? Am I, um, you know, using that in ways that Jesus wouldn't use it? Um, And I, I don't know. Those are not easy easy things to wrestle with. So I think, you know, Peter used the word compromises. At the very least, we're going to end up in some gray area. Uh, You'll find this being a parent. You will have power to enforce things on your children uh, when they're very little to physically enforce them. Is that a misuse of power? Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's like, so I think we can take what I was saying about power and the temptation to, to worldly power too far. How far is too far? I think that's tricky. Um, and, and do, you know, I think there are some people who kind of think because we forgive, um, that means we don't hold people to account. So, uh, for example, if someone, you know, murders someone's daughter and then they get up at, you know, the parents get up at the trial and say, we forgive you and we ask, you know, the judge not to punish them. Well, I think there's a difference between the forgiveness of the wronged person or the wronged people and society's decisions about how we enforce the rules. Um, and so the, does the forgiveness of the victim in our mind always mean that person then is free with no penalties? And we're like, no, because sometimes we, we decide that, no, we want to make that behavior seem really unappetizing to everyone else. Or we think this person is still, they would go do this to someone else. And so we're going to restrain them in some way. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of complicated issues there. So I don't think that individually not being the one that's like um, carrying out justice means I have to be opposed to justice in society. But I think I would individually want to lean towards mercy. I don't know. What do you guys kind of think? Um, well, I mean, I, I would want to know more specifics mm-hmm. about what <laughs> the question is trying to go mean? for. But I can tell you from my experience in politics and working in politics that hypocrites don't get very far, um, at least in the local 
side. People who are two-faced and you don't know what they're for, um, mm. don't get very far uh, relationship-wise. Politics-wise, it could take you pretty far. <laughs> but relationships-wise, it's pretty hard. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the people that I most enjoyed working with and most enjoyed meeting uh, were the people, not necessarily that I, that I agreed with, but people who held convictions and held them firmly mm. and weren't willing to just say what I wanted to hear. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's something that, again, like, we're not hypocrites. Like, if you're going to go into politics, like, think through your convictions, hold them fast, um, not to the point where you're not, like, willing to change your mind, but to the point where you're not just, you know, someone tossed to and fro by the waves mm -hmm. um, of popularity um, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You wanna... um, so someone asked, and, and I'm not going to pull up Jalen for this one because I think we heard from him, so maybe from the three of us a little bit. Um, we got a couple different questions. One was, you know, is it morally okay to vote for someone who's pro-abortion um, or has a blatant disregard for human life? Um, to expand on that, how can we feel confident about voting for anyone when both parties are so very flawed? There was a similar question on the other side of, you know, um, maybe is it morally okay to vote for someone who we think is racist or sexist or abusive? So we have, you know, big words there. But yeah, Jalen spoke to that. What are you guys kind of thinking? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I... I definitely understand and relate to the question a lot. I think that is <clears throat> kind of the question that has been going through my mind, certainly over the last few months, if not over even the last few years. Uh, I think after this last election cycle was when, uh, similar to Jalen, I kind of wanted to be a little bit better about how I thought through this. Um, and so, yeah, I think this, this all the talks we've been doing have been trying to uh, at least open doors to trying to think through this question essentially like is it is it a matter of like uh morals you know mm -hmm. this person have enough morals that check off on my moral checklist for me to vote for them is it a matter of what they're going to legislate and how i think that legislation is going to affect people is it a, you know so I, I think those are the things that you know it's impossible for me to sit up here and tell you you know this is how you should vote based on that i think i want more so for you to take what we talked about and think through like, okay, based on that, um, where do I put like morals on this like priority spectrum? Is it at the top for me? Is it number two? Is it number three? And why? Mm -hmm. And how did I get to that uh, as my answer, you know, and stuff like that. So, but I mean, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts, but I definitely relate to that question a lot. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think Jalen put it really well when he was talking about how both parties value life and devalue life, um, that they both love the way that Jesus loves in some ways and totally misunderstand and get it wrong in some ways. And I, it is, it is very difficult. I, I don't think it's black and white. I don't think you can say every time someone votes for somebody who is not against a, uh, let me not, let me not do two negatives. Every time someone votes for somebody who is pro-choice is automatically a sin. I don't think it's as black and white as that. Yeah, I was reflecting on this a little bit after last week's question about sort of, um, you know, one issue, single issue voting. And, and I was thinking, you know, some of I think what's frustrating sometimes about single issue voting is that 
the position that I might be voting for someone might have nothing to do with that issue. So um, do I think that abortion should be my single issue when I'm voting for county sheriff? The county sheriff has nothing to do with abortion or abortion policy, but he has a lot to do, he or she, with um, whether our minority brothers and sisters get pulled over for no reason and, and what are the policies, whether they get asked uh, questions about their immigration status that they're not legally allowed to be, you know, uh, required to answer, things like that. So um, I think being aware to some degree of, you know, who, what is this role that I'm putting this person in and do they have anything to do with this thing? Uh, and then, yeah, we're going to vote some sinner in. And uh, we have to make some calls about how much of that am I comfortable with. But I also think we have to realize, like, I don't know. I just think sometimes we give such weight. And as, as a couple of them pointed out, like, my vote is one of many millions. Um, and in Texas, my vote for president probably isn't going to matter. Like, it's not going to sway things. Um, and so maybe I need to be more concerned about some other votes that I haven't even thought about. Um, if we focus on the kingdom, does that mean that we should be apolitical? This was asked during Ryan's talk. It's to some degree what um, Peter's talk was about, but do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I would, I mean, in short answer, not necessarily. Uh, I think that, uh, I think Peter's talk was really helpful for this. I think this whole idea of there is a, we come from a history of a spectrum, basically, if we are in the Christian faith. And, uh, and I think a lot of us go through these thoughts without evaluating where on that spectrum we're at. And I'm evaluating currently where on that spectrum I'm at. Mm -hmm. And if the place I'm at is okay. And so um, I think you do need to try to figure out um, where you usually fall, how you got to that decision on, you know, where you fall. Um, and, uh, and I do think that, you know, it's been said a few times that God may be calling um, you to something that he's not calling someone else to. Um, so you certainly need to be uh, actually praying uh, and asking God the questions you're thinking through. I think sometimes, at least, uh, I know for me, it's tempting to want to, God, to, want to just go to God um, and be like, who do I vote for? Or like, what do I do with this issue? Instead of asking like, um, what are the questions I need to be asking myself that are gonna shape how I think about this? Who are the people I need to be having conversations with? I guess, I just think there's so much left there uh, in terms of prayer that we don't engage with. Uh, and so, yeah, I would point you in that direction. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think of, um, <clears throat> what was I going to say? Something about you. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again, you know, what I said, what Ryan said, I think some of us are called to be apolitical, but I don't want you to use that as an excuse of like, ooh, this is an option. Now I don't need to think about things. Like, I'm just not going to participate at all. I think we still do think about things, and through that we choose to, uh, abstain from the political process. Um, but I would also caution that just because I abstain from it doesn't mean I get to judge everyone for who do participate. Um, I think of one of our previous coworkers who, uh, was she vegan or vegetarian? But yeah, basically chose that lifestyle based on like the cruelty to animals. But she never judged us for, for eating meat. It was just a personal conviction she had. And honestly, that personal conviction has made me think through my personal convictions a whole lot more than other vegetarians and vegans who kind of push their agenda onto yeah. me. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that anyone's 
apolitical. I think, I think we all live in this thing and, and what we do impacts. And I think it's just a part of the reality that I'm not just an isolated individual. Like I live in varying levels of community. And, and one of those is, you know, this country. And, um, and we do some things collectively together. And there's a mystery in that, that in some sense, God sees us collectively as well as individually. And so I don't, I don't know that we get to be apolitical. I think it's in what ways do we engage? Um, what does it look like to use storytelling today in our conversations? I think that's probably flowing from Ryan's thing, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple thoughts. I mean, <clears throat> one, I think uh, <laughs> I've had to think about this uh, really for the last few years I've been on staff. I remember in some staff meetings a few years ago, Garrett had us come and tell a story every week as part of our staff meeting because a number of us on staff were just really bad at it. And I, <laughs> I continue to be probably the person on my friend group that's pretty bad at it. Um, so I've, I've had to kind of think about this because I do think stories are powerful and I've seen the effect that someone sitting across from me uh, telling me a story has in terms of ministering to me. Uh, there is something about a story that lodges in people's minds and gets past their kind of defensiveness in a way that really very few other mediums do, I think. And so, um, so yeah, I think I've, I've been trying to think about this. And, you know, it's not just like this idea that we have to go around making up a bunch of fictional stories in order to get through to people. I think, you know, that maybe there's a place for that. And, and if so, I'd love to see Christians begin to, like, explore writing stories for that purpose. I think that would be really neat. I think of the Bible Project. They don't use fictional stories, but they use imagery and animation that we usually associate with storytelling in order to lodge ideas in people's minds at a greater, uh, at, just to a greater level, that I think, than we're used to, and that's effective. But I also think I was going to say uh, non nonfiction, so to speak, these true stories uh, that we've either witnessed in our lives or heard from other people, uh, when used in the right moments, ministering to someone can be really powerful. I, I was even thinking today, I read uh, this article about uh, essentially uh, a man over in Europe, I can't remember what country, who uh, runs a museum on the Holocaust, and he had a, a leader of a foreign nation that came through uh, his museum, and he, I guess, had some kind of relationship after that with this guy, and he heard about a young man uh, who was 12 in this in this nation where this leader came from, who was going to be sent to prison for many, many years for uh, something he said in public, and they were going to lock him up. Um, and he reached out personally to that leader and kind of um, used the relationship as a context to plead for this young boy's case. And he also said... Uh, if you don't let him go, or if you don't let him off this, uh, myself and a bunch of other people who have already talked to are willing to do a month at a time of this boy's prison sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is really powerful. That's like a story to me that communicates the gospel. This guy, uh, even the writers of the story where journalists pointed out, he didn't like get outraged on social media. He didn't take the normal platforms that we see about you know, when something's going wrong, we get upset and post about it. He just did what he could directly in order to try to affect uh, not every boy's life in that country, but this young man's life in order to make something different for him. And I think we underestimate the power, one, of actions like that, but also, two, of just sharing stuff like that that's happening or that we've heard about, yeah. and that can be really meaningful. And, and yeah, and I think even what Jalen and Adriana did today, sharing their own personal stories was much more powerful um, and compelling 
than if they just shared information, you know, uh, uh, impersonal. I'm going to have to move us faster. We are at 6.30. So again, you're welcome to bow out anytime you want, but we'll get to as many of these as we can. Uh, someone said, my friend's being canceled because she is very outspoken of her politics. How can we as a ministry reach out to her? Um, well, I, I don't know. I mean, if you mean we as a ministry of like focus the organization, probably not. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I don't think we should be canceling people in that way. I don't think that Again, that, that's when I kind of said both sides of this um, political spectrum tend to be very unmerciful. That's sort of what the progressive liberal side is doing. It's unmerciful. You mess up, then you are done, and we will not like you forever, and there can be no forgiveness and no redemption. And we see that with a lot of the celebrities and around Me Too and just so many things like that that it's... And that, it's gotten to the point where I just joke with people. I see one of those new things. I'm like, well, we have to hate them now because that's like that's the only way to be a good person is to hate. And nah, no, we don't want to do that. So I don't think we can participate. Um, so I think a lot of it just depends on, you know, personal relationship and, and stuff. There would be, that would be a good conversation to talk through with a, uh, a mentor. Um. Let's see. Um, I'm going to pull Jalen up because I know there's some some questions here that are related to his talk. Um, so the first one, uh, if we are called to not vote by God, I may take this one, but then are reminded that taking the road of apathy leads to destruction in Scripture, how should we go about making the decision to vote or not? And I, I would say you know, just quickly, I don't think Jalen was saying, I don't think there's a, apathy and not voting are the same thing. Uh, I think Jalen was talking about deciding not to vote. Um, I think you can be apathetic and vote. <laughs> um, and apathy is about, I don't care. I don't really care about others. I don't really care about anything. And so I'll just take, do whatever's easiest to me. Uh, and I think what we're engaging in here today is, is the opposite of that, trying to think critically. Anything you want to say to that? Or? Yeah, I tried to list ways in which we might be tempted to go with the flow and mm. either act or not act, or if we do act, act in particular ways. I think there are ways in which, if you define our culture as like our age group, apathy could look like just going with the flow and voting Democrat. Or if our culture is our like geographical area, going with the flow could just look like voting Republican without much thought or intention. And then if it's, I don't want to wrestle with these issues, <clears throat> so I'm not going to think about it, apathy and going with the flow involves not voting. And so I think you can act or not act yeah. with an apathetic mindset. Uh, this is an interesting question, and, and I do hear people talking about this quite a bit. It says, considering our Lord died on a cross, and in church history, the church has tended to grow in the midst of persecution, how do we think about the idea of voting to protect our rights as Christians? Why should we aim to protect our rights at all? Um, I would, yeah, I, I've wrestled with this one a little bit um, because I think it plays into the current election in some ways. I think, one, I think we do need to be careful about um, trying to protect our rights over against other people's rights, um, which that's just tribalism, and it's not, I, I don't think it's what Jesus was doing. Uh, I think it's a very different thing to try to protect 
people's rights and and to not i think you know we have some convictions as a country about rights that we have rights that we want to have and i see a lot of young people very quick to throw away rights and give the government you know more power um so i i read a thing this week about how many um people on college campuses i don't remember the exact numbers but were saying they thought it was okay to um, oppose even violently a uh, some a speaker on their campus that they disagreed with. And so we've got this thing where it's like, we want the government, we want powers that be to take away freedom of speech from people we disagree with and about topics that we disagree with. Well, it doesn't really work that way. Um, it cuts both ways. And so either that's either a right that we protect and understand that that means some things are going to get said that we find pretty unpalatable, um, or it's a right that we take away, and then you give that that ability to whom? Um, so yeah, I think I think there is a sense that maybe we need to be a lot more careful about what rights we're willing to throw away just to silence someone we don't like in the short run. I don't know. Anything you want to add? Yeah, and then I think when it comes to the persecution thing, I think the attitude towards persecution that we see in the New Testament is not that we would pursue it. I, we kind of touched on this last week, but mm -hmm. not that we would pursue it so as to somehow be like Jesus, but that we would embrace it when it comes, that we wouldn't resist it, um, you know, pursuing our own gain. And also that we would trust God to work through those trying yeah. circumstances. So, And that if, we don't yeah. need to to fear it and live, yeah. act out of fear of it. But um, uh, Someone said, I want to evaluate the stances of each political candidate compared to Jesus. However, I don't know where to look for an objective read. Do you have any advice for it to find useful information that's less biased? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, some of what I'm coming out of is paying more attention to camps than I am specific candidates. And so... I think part of what I was at fault of doing was, yeah, looking at these general talking points of the parties and not so much what specific policies candidates were, you know, proponents of and whatnot. And so I do think that's going to be part of the process between now and election day is trying to figure out what specific, you know, policies they stand for, but also just kind of what's within their power. <laughs> you know, kind of like Brandon was talking about, um, am I going to vote for, is my stance on abortion going to affect, you know, voting for some sort of like police officer, you know, position or whatever. <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I was on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it takes, I mean, there's definitely a lot of websites and things that will kind of tell you positions of different people. Um, what Jesus thought about those things, I would be wary of taking that as gospel truth from any website, even Christian ones. I mean, it's, um, trying to apply Jesus to modern politics is its own tricky thing, and you're going to have to do some careful thinking there. So I want to get Adriana to come up for one question, too. So I'm, I'm trading out Jalen. Um, because there was a question, um, if I can't vote because I'm not a U.S. citizen, what does that mean for me in my involvement with politics at the moment? What can I do to make sure I'm still doing God's will while I can't vote? Yeah, so two things come to mind. Um, I think the first one is like uh, a no-brainer, but like I would pray about it and see 
what does God think or, or what do you hear from God saying like what should be your role in that um, but the other thing that um, I've experienced is just just kind of like what Ryan was talking about earlier of just the importance or the value and just storytelling and, and sharing like our experience and our story and where we come from and um, with other individuals so that because I think oftentimes like not many think of what this individual, an immigrant, is going through or how certain laws or policies affect that person. So um, I actually um, received a text from one of the girls in my core um, saying how much like value she got and, and like thoughts she got from just the conversation that I shared, the conversation that Jalen shared. Um, so I think there's a lot to say there that we should probably share our story. Yeah, and I think that does a lot. I, I think it's so important for us to, you know, the the term in the culture is to humanize. But for us as as Christians is to see the image of God in each person. Um, because, yeah, people become these labels. And, I, you know, when, when a lot of this immigration stuff started picking up a few years ago, I read an article where people were talking about we start calling people illegals. It's like, what is that? What kind of a label is that? That that's... You know, it's like, I don't see them as men, women, children anymore made in God's image. They are an illegal, whatever that, that's not even a term for a person. And so um, I think we've got to be really careful with the way that we identify because I think it reflects the way we see humans. Um, and when we start to see humans as anything other than the image of God, sin and idolatry is always in the mix. Um, and, and that means repentance is the way out um, before and above anything else. So, um, yeah, thanks, Adriana, for, for doing that. We'll get Peter back up here for these last few. Um, so when we look to the Bible uh, in thinking through tough issues, when is it okay to use the it was a different time idea? So, like, I see people using that, supporting women in church leadership, is it valid on other issues? How do we sort of bring in the time-bound nature of, of Scripture? Do you have any thoughts? Um, yeah, like one of the uh, one of the what what is it called methods, philosophies um, that people use, um, and it does have its criticisms. I'm not going to say like this is truth, um, but it makes sense to me at least. Is like how does God's um, how does what what does God think about something over over time? Right, we 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 do have this Bible that tran uh, uh, it it spans a very long period of time, and so often it talks about uh, sla slaves or or women uh, in ministry, and it's just like yeah, like we have this snapshot of of commands and the treatment of slaves and women in the early Old Testament, and then we have some more snapshots in the Old Testament, and then we have some snapshots in the New. And what is that trend? And how do you, like, we can extrapolate that. And then we do have this revelation imagery where we have a snapshot of the future. Um, and we, we get to use that as well. And it's just like, what does that tell us um, about God's heart, about God's vision and ideal for these things? Um, and so we see with slaves and women in ministry, um, generally, uh, is that, yeah, like, God has been working towards this no more slaves, no more inequal social inequality like that. Um, 
and, and including women as well. Mm-hmm. It's just like women have historically been, been uh, dominated by, by men. Um, but, uh, but we see in the end, it's just like all men, all women, all, all nations, all tongues, eunuchs, foreigners, strangers. It's just like we all get to be in God's presence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, we, we have to figure out what is the kingdom ideal? I think the Bible is very explicit about that in some places. Um, Jesus makes very specific value judgments about one thing over another, but other places, it's not. Uh, the apprentices and I, this week, we were wrestling with Ezra and Nehemiah and looking at these men that were, you know, trying to follow God, but was it good that they made all these people divorce their wives just because their wives weren't Israelites and send their wives and children away uncared for? Like, all right, it's like just because they were righteous and maybe had even like, oh, we shouldn't have married these women in the first place. So then God approves of all divorce. And, you know, and and so I think then what do we do with that example? It happened. The narrator doesn't say it was good. God doesn't speak from heaven in the book or at any other time in the Bible and say that was good. Um, And so we have to compare it. We have to do some thinking. And uh, one thing that Ian Proven, who teaches the class we use for with them, says is that we're we're called to pursue uh, the vision of the kingdom of God, not the past reality on the ground. And so I think sometimes it's like, yeah, we're trying to figure out what is God's kingdom vision, not what used to happen. Uh, but sometimes there's a trajectory of change, and sometimes there's a very consistent. This is always considered wicked. Um, this is always considered good. And, and so we don't have to ask, you know, we don't have to look for movement because there, there wasn't any. Um, is it better to risk exercising what power we have to unintentionally bring about unrighteous ends or are we better off not exercising power at all? Okay, I wanna, I wanna comment on this first because I think, yeah, there's no way for us to not exercise power. We're all exercising power all the time. We have relational power over the people in our lives. Jesus did not reject exercising power. The question I asked was not, did Jesus use power? It was, how did Jesus use power? Um, So he rejected doing a miracle to benefit himself, but then he proceeded to do a lot of very powerful things to benefit all sorts of other people. Um, He rejected jumping off the temple and not dying, but then he came back to life after they killed him. You know, I mean, it's like he's, he's a powerful man and he used power and his words were powerful and he moved people. Um, we will use power. I think the question is, are we willing to compromise and, and use this kind of, to what extent will we use this means, you know, justify, or the ends justify the means thing? It's like, oh yeah, Jesus is supposed to be in charge of the world. He only has to bow to Satan for one minute, and then he's got it. You know, skip the cross, skip all the hard stuff. It's, and he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't compromise on what was righteous just to be powerful. Uh, or to have power that he could then use for good things. So, yeah, I think, um, so I don't know. That brings us back to this question. I'll get you guys to comment. Is it better to risk exercising what power we have and unintentionally bring about unrighteous things, or should we not exercise power at all? I don't know. I think it's just risk 
unintended consequences or do nothing? I mean, I think the, the foundation of this question is action versus inaction. Mm. Like, but I think the assumption is that inaction is, is better. Um, and it's not. Inaction is inaction. Um, when we, uh, what is that passage in the old Fodge with sin? It's just like when, when, when you know what is, what, uh, when you know what right there is you, sh- you ought to do and you don't do it, that for you is sin, right? It's just mm-hmm. like inaction can be sinful. Um, yeah, action, action does carry risks. Every action carries risk. Um, but so does inaction. We just sometimes don't get the immediate effects of that inaction. Um, but, we, but we see the effects of Christians not, um, not upholding the humanity of our black brothers and sisters for centuries, and we see the effects of that. But we don't get to point our fingers at any one person who did not act because they didn't act. And so they may, in, in, in humanity's eyes, never be pointed out as like sinful. You didn't, you didn't do what was right. But, but God knows, mm-hmm. like, not in some kind of like, oh, just, but you know, God knows when we, don't, when we don't reach his ideal and we don't get to just kind of fly under the radar because we didn't do anything. Um, so yeah. Yeah. How do you think we speak truth to power? That was your thing. I mean, in many ways, um, you know, I, I think often we think of, and you, you, you talked about the prophets last, uh, last week. Um, and you know, I think we often think of, oh, like I need to say very like firmly to the most powerful people on the earth, like that is speaking truth to power, but no, we speak truth. To, we, we can speak truth to power every single day. Um, because there are lots of powerful people in our lives of, of relative power, um, even even situations where power differentials in, uh, happen. Um, even the way, but the way we live our lives, the way we follow Jesus, the way we speak. It's like yeah, when I choose to um, live well below my means and give away most of my money, um, that is that is in part speaking truth to power, saying to the culture like you are not going to be the determiner of how we live, um, how I live, um, and what is right, um, how we ought to live. Um, that is in part speaking truth to power. I think um, I wouldn't go so far as to say like, the, you, know, uh, you know, preach the gospel with your actions and if necessary, use words. That, that extreme of like, oh, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm just gonna like live my little nice dainty life. Um, no, we do need to like speak, speak. Um, but our, our actions also speak truth to power. Um, so that's one, one way. Yeah, I, I, see a lot of, it, I see a lot of cowardice. I see a lot of hiding behind our phones in these day-to-day kinds of things. It's kind of like watching how many videos get taken of some of these horrific things and no one says anything. It's like, well, you know, I'm like, I would hope that we would speak to a police officer if we saw them doing something that we thought was abusive. It's like, oh, well, I risk something. It's like, well, that's, yeah, if you speak truth to power, you risk something. Um, I would hope that if, if you see uh, your boss at work abusing their power or, or you perceive it that way, that you would ask questions. And I think we can, we can 
always say more louder later, or most of the time we can say more louder later. Um, but I think, you know, starting somewhere. Um, but often we just talk about things instead of two people. And so, yeah, I think there's, I think starting with the, the small amounts of power where you are rather than thinking like, how do I get my message to President Trump today? Um, you know, and, and even our church leaders and things like that, it's, it's hard. Um, someone said this pizza theology was applied very much to American politics, but what about that of other places? Would the same apply in communist USSR or, um, you know, in an absolute monarchy or, you know, th these different places? Do you, do we, how do we see these principles playing out other times and places? Yeah, I mean, just a couple of thoughts. I think the, the kingdom ideal thing applies in every place, every situation. Mm -hmm. um, there's a reason, I think, that we contrast now uh, to this time where Jesus was talking, and we say, this is what was going on here, and then we say, here are some reflections now, is because at any point when you're comparing, you know, there's always going to be these things you have to, like, sort through. It's like, okay, what of it is different? What of it is similar? You know, and, and that is, like, a process that can take a while. So, um, do I think, like, there's overlap with some of the ones you mentioned, the examples? Like, probably, I don't know what, you know, I'd have to, one, probably either study or live in that area. But for sure, I think the, the kingdom ideal and, and the, the, I guess, at base, the idea that we belong to that kingdom now, primarily, no matter what our political, you know, world around us is, whether that's American or otherwise. Um, and so figuring out how to make that kingdom of God, you know, come to bear in that situation is going to differ, I think, some. Um, but it doesn't, what, do, what shouldn't differ, I guess, is our allegiance and our loyalty to that. Yeah, and I think we remember that even, even the Bible, especially the New Testament, was written not to America, but in the midst of an empire uh, with emperors who were notoriously fickle. Some were very good and effective, and some were probably insane, and some were very, very wicked. And, you know, there was just a, a wide range. So they were speaking into a different situation. I think the challenge is how do we, where, regardless of where we are, use our rights and opportunities? Uh, and I think even, even in the New Testament, you see Paul doing that, that sometimes he just took the beating. And other times he said, no, I'm a Roman citizen and you can't beat me without a trial. Um, or I appeal to Caesar. Or, you know, it's like he had some sense of what his rights were. And we don't get a clear explanation of why he used them sometimes and didn't use them other times. But we see that he did. And so I think understanding what those are in our context can be helpful because then we can at least start from I know what I've got at my disposal. I know what tools I have. Um, will I use them? And then I think in you know in every situation we've got to be willing to say no. I stand, I stand for God, and I'll take the consequences. And that's that's going to be different in different countries, situations. Anything you want to add? Okay, last part. Um, which part, question, or topic from this pizza theology was most difficult for each of you to think through and wrestle with? How did God meet you there and help you with that? <laughs> I'm like, today's was hard. Um, I, I'm still working through my own. I mean, that whole spectrum thing, like, I'm, I don't know 
where God really wants me to be there. Uh-oh, I'm about to hit my phone. Um, whatever. Um, yeah, so today was very difficult in, in giving you guys a so what and, like, what to do with this and what, what it's all about. Um, yeah, even describing those political uh, philosophies was difficult because I'm like, these people are smart. And, like, all the, all the, uh, the criticism that I can think of, I'm sure they've responded to them. I just haven't read it yet. And yeah. so, you know, I, I think there was just a lot of humility and, and, and even approaching you guys. I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I'm just telling you where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I barely know that. Yeah, I mean, similarly, today was definitely hard. Uh, I think, uh, like Peter said, I'm, I'm very much still trying to figure out how to think through this stuff well. And I was talking to my wife, Nicole, about it. I guess a couple nights ago when I was like trying to write the bulk of it and I'm like, how do I talk about something that I am like, you know, just trying to wrestle with so much, you know, I, I just don't even know, you know, which thing is going to be most important. And, and so, yeah, I think, I think today was hard and, uh, and certainly like was good for me too to have to try to like wrestle through that stuff. But, um, it's also tricky to know like, okay, is this going to be helpful like for you now? Um, if, is what I'm wrestling with always going to be helpful for someone else? And, and so how do I adapt yeah. like those kinds of things into something helpful for sure was hard. But. Yeah. Well, I'm 41, so it's really, I've kind of got it all figured out. So yeah. no, no, I mean really, yeah, it's, it's this whole thing. This, so what thing is so challenging. And I think even today has been good for me listening to these guys and, and trying to process through. I think the thing that's, uh, I, I kind of shared briefly, but this, this thing of hearing about Trump getting COVID and then sort of looking at the different things that were bubbling up in my heart has probably been the most convicting and just, um, and just trying to kind of, yeah, see, I'm like, man, why is there this instinct of like, well, he gets what he deserves. I don't know, you know, it's like, why do I have this, you know, this thing rather than this first thing being like, here's another image bearer, and I hope God uses this ultimately to bless him and through him others. And um, and I'm like, man, so many non-Christian world leaders and things like that are so much classier than I am. And um, so, yeah, I think I think just seeing some of that and having to to grapple with it. So, you know, how can you, the last part of that question was sort of what advice would we give you? I mean, that's what this pizza theology has been. And that's why we kind of do these to say, come along with us on this journey and, um, and be thinking about this. And please, please don't think you have it figured out while you're in college. Um, and, uh, and stick with it and, and walk with the Lord and see where he takes you. So I'll say a prayer and we'll be done. God, I want to pray that you have your hand on us and that your spirit moves powerfully. Uh, and I thank you for each uh, devoted student who has stayed with us here to the end. And I pray that it would be uh, worth it ultimately for them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks.